Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. Also on Facebook, Political Beats there. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Tune in or write at nationalreview.com. Click on podcasts, find all the fine audio NR has to offer. Listen and leave reviews where possible, especially if they're good. That helps us gain new listeners. And we also invite you to check us out over on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash political beats. Support us there. Help the show stay ad free as it is. We have entry level support there for uh, saying nice job, guys. Some voting privileges and bonuses here and there. Mid-level for early access to all of our new shows and all shows at a higher audio quality. And our upper-level bestest friends, you get the early access, the higher audio quality, the monthly exclusive content episodes, remastered shows from our pasts, playlist, and more over at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Now the part of the program in which we thank some of our Patreon supporters directly and specifically, many of these on board since our last episode. Zachary Galon, Will Devaney, Britt, Steve Ritchie, Jonathan Sabin, Dennis Charles, Stephen P., and Chris Enlow. Thank all of you for joining us over at Patreon and helping support Political Beats. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter or X. At Scott Bertram, my tag team partner, standing by as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing great, Scott. Now that people might be feeling gloomy, but I'm just kicking down a cobblestones, looking for fun and feeling groovy. It's not a bad way to live. Jeff on Twitter or X at Esoteric CD. I don't say X. It just always sounds wrong. It does. Jeff is on X. You can't say that. Our it guest- sounds like I'm on a, a porn site. I mean, no, <laughs> you will not find me on OnlyFans. No, uh, for now. Our guest on today's program uh, spent two decades as a Republican political strategist before shifting to corporate reputation and advocacy, which he does as a partner at Purple Strategies. You find him on Twitter at Rory Cooper. He's a two-time guest. He is Rory Cooper. Rory, thanks so much for joining us once again. I'm so happy to be back with you guys talking about one of my favorites. Yes, uh, uh, somewhat of a prequel to our previous show. More on that in a moment. Rory, as we get started, tell people about what you've been doing and what you do now over at Purple Strategies. Yeah, I mean, so our agency is there to help companies uh, weather challenges, whether they are friction in their category, whether it's a crisis that develops externally. We use research. Uh, best-in-class creative and uh, the campaign DNA that a lot of us bring to our from our backgrounds to help companies navigate those headwinds and tailwinds, and uh, you know we're 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 doing a pretty good job of it, I think, so far. And uh, mostly, most recently, I think I've just spent more of my time listening to a huge catalog of music more so. So I probably have to get back to that soon. <laughs> uh, Rory, you're back with us today to talk about, uh, as I mentioned, a prequel to our previous episode. You were with us. Uh, I looked at the date. It was about a year and a half ago, maybe a slight bit longer to talk about the solo career 
of Paul Simon. And much like on this program, we talk with Paul, with Mark Davis about Paul McCartney's solo career and Wings. Before we tackled the Beatles, well, we tackled Paul Simon's solo career before we addressed Simon and Garfunkel. But that is why Rory's back today as we take the political beats look at the music and career of Simon with Garfunkel. Rory, we turn the floor back over to you. Tell us a bit about why you love Simon and Garfunkel, how you uh, were introduced to their music, and why people should care about this stuff as a duo before Paul Simon's solo career. Yeah, I mean, frankly, I'm honored to be here to talk about uh, about Simon and Garfunkel. I, I think Paul Simon belongs in a category with Bob Dylan and Lennon and McCartney from a songwriting perspective from that era. I think that he gets a lot of kudos for his songwriting, uh, but is still, I think, underrated from my perspective, because what he put together over the course of several decades was just such an amazing collection of music. And this period where he's with his old friend Art and Art's beautiful voice, but also that tension and friction between them, uh, Paul writing about his coming of age, his time in Europe, his, you know, uh, reckoning with what style he wants to present in himself. Uh, it really, the, the music tells a story. And I think that you see this arc from the first albums that we're going to discuss through Bridge, where he really finds himself and where he wants to go. And he ends this duo on such a major, impactful album which is not always the case when you see bands or duos disintegrate where they end at their peak. This group ends and Paul Simon's ready to launch into a solo career. And it's really just a remarkable period with so much drama, so many interesting stories that weave other artists in that I um, I'm just always been fascinated by it. I started, you know, as we mentioned on the last episode, I started listening to them just by getting the Simon and Garfunkel Greatest Hits album from Columbia House for a penny. And uh, I was already really into Bob Dylan. I was into the Beatles. I was into um, the Grateful Dead. And this songwriting just really appealed to me. And it made me want to dig in more. And they've been a part of my 
you know, music life ever since. Do you want to go next? And then maybe I'll follow at the end. Certainly, Jeff. Well, this Simon and Garfunkel catalog, I mentioned this via emails before we started the, the, the discussion today. It's one I resisted visiting for a long time because of some of the... I, I explained this to a friend in this way. Simon and Garfunkel, as a, as a duo, as a group, have this weird distinction of, of, of having a, a handful of songs that I really don't like or really great, great on me. So out front, like Scarborough Frere, really don't like that song. Really don't like that Interesting. song. And so I would, I would sort of push against it. But it obscured the fact that even along the way, they were still making a lot of songs that I did enjoy. It was just a very weird blind spot. And so it was interesting to go back and actually follow where they went album by album, where they started, uh, where they went. You know, the fact that Paul Simon is such a perfectionist, such a technician, both as a writer. Uh, this was the 1960s when you had people putting out two albums a year. Very common. Simon would take two years between albums occasionally, uh, not without some label pressure to move faster, but he didn't. He really slaved over the craft of the songs he was writing. And then you realize the more you listen to the Simon and Garfunkel stuff, and this would be more apparent as we move into the solo career, which we have already covered, but we've already done. It's, it's, it's the, like the part two that we yeah. recorded part one. But right? the, the kind of guy he was in the studio and the interest he had in, in rhythms and eventually, yes. you know, world music and the way he used the studio, this was, I would not, I would never have put Paul Simon in this category before going back to these albums, but you can hear, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure Garfunkel had some input on this. I would imagine. I don't know the inner workings of all of it as a relative novice to the partnership, but the way he used the studio and the way he used the production techniques, you could tell he was listening to the Beatles and the Beatles influenced him. You could tell he was listening to the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson and they influenced him and how he presented what began as straight up folk music, as we'll talk about momentarily and quickly morphed into something else and then morphed into something else as we get later on in, in the Simon and Garfunkel career to the point where, you know, by the time this ride is over, a very short discography. So this won't be a three hour long uh, episode. You don't have to get the, you know, we, the beer on we ice. We keep promising this, but we, we <laughs> we'll really see. don't know until it's finally over. <laughs> but by the right. time you get to the end, it bookends and, and bridge over troubled water. I was really blown, unexpectedly blown away by both the quality of the work and unexpectedly how much I enjoyed it. I really like those songs. And for reasons, it's also weird for a, for, for a band, for a duo, for a group that I, again, resisted going back to. I have more notes on some of these songs and not necessarily on the songs themselves. But, and Jeff will love this because he was psychoanalyzing some of Paul Simon's stuff in the email thread. But, you know, why he chose this, why he did yeah. that. That is a really interesting story about Simon and Garfunkel, too. So this is going to be a fun one. Gee, but it's great to be back home. Home is where I want to be. I've been on the road so long, my friend. And if you came along, I know you couldn't disagree. It's 
Yeah, I think the point I made is that, that he, he very clearly at a certain point starts writing his creative anxieties into his music and into the albums. And you can see it all the way there. It's very, very clear once you're cued into what to look for. Um, but it's interesting that we have somewhat different opinions about Simon and Garfunkel. I guess in, in, in an interesting way, I stand in the middle ground here in the sense that I never dis, I don't have any particular songs of theirs that I dislike or that I hate. There are some that are famous that I'm just not a huge fan of, but I have no trigger points the way you seem to with a song like <laughs> Scarborough Affair. I yeah. love that song. I, I'll be interested in seeing which other ones, you know, that, you know, really push your buttons or something like that. Um, in my bias against Simon and Garfunkel, I think is primarily inherited from the critics because it wasn't from my dad. My dad, my father, who I, I mentioned his tastes a lot on this show because he was, you know, a big folky. And his upstate New York folky, you know, proclivities uh, certainly played a huge role in, in things that I was exposed to as a child. So I've mentioned before that meant Bob Dylan, obviously, in the band, but it also meant Ian and Sylvia. <clears throat> it meant the Clancy brothers. Uh, and it also meant Simon and Garfunkel. There was no opposition in, in, in my father's mind. Uh, and he was a pretty smart fella and a pretty discerning, you know, consumer of music. He didn't think that those those people were like in, in opposition to one another or that Simon and Garfunkel were inauthentic. He just liked their music. And he liked the pop hits too. Um, I liked them as well, but they never really kind of like, you know, stuck to me. And then later on when I started reading music criticism, it was impossible not to notice the bias against them. And, and then at a young age, when I didn't have strong feelings myself, I have to confess this. You know, I was a, I was tabula rasa and I just kind of absorbed what I thought the, the proper view was. So for a long time, I was like, yeah, they're lame, they're dorky. And, and what I didn't realize <laughs> is that there was a very real baked in historical animus against Paul Simon and I guess Art Garfunkel as well, but Simon in particular, uh, all throughout the rock critic industry. And it, it's kind of hilarious uh, when you find out its roots go all the way back to the early 60s. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the way Simon was viewed on the folk scene in New York back in the day. We will get into this with their first album. So it was really fun to go back to this music and find that I think everybody has about it half right. <laughs> I think these albums are very flawed, some of them, okay? Even bookends, which I know Scott likes. I think there are flaws on that. I don't need to listen to two minutes of old people talking. Sorry, Art. It was a nice <laughs> idea, but, you know, I can barely make out what they're saying anyways. They're old, you know? Um, but but. Bridge Over Troubled Water is a masterpiece. So many of the other album songs and the albums overall are pretty excellent and the individual songs are great. And as Scott already pointed out and Rory already pointed out, this is where you see Paul Simon finding his footing as a writer. And I guess my thesis of the show will be uh, figuring out that he didn't have to pretend to be a folk singer. That's how he started, although actually he started as a teen idol, as we'll begin with. Uh, but then he tried to make his name as a folk singer singer songwriter it wasn't really a right fit and everybody might have noticed it and he finally realized itself and once he realized that he was a great pop singer songwriter well that's when paul simon was liberated to become the paul simon who we already covered in, in our earlier episode on his solo career
happening throughout the story of Simon and Garfunkel. The last thing I'll point out is that Art Garfunkel isn't just an appendage to this. He's really a critical part of the sound of this group. There is an absolutely clear difference between Paul Simon's solo work, even on his first album, which I'd say resembles, you know, late period S&G the most. But there's a difference when you don't have that choir boy voice of arts, which is beautiful and it's a little formal. And so it keeps sometimes maybe the band from being as funky as they otherwise might. But it, it's really a component of what made them sort of, you know, conquer the pop charts in the late 60s. A winter's day In a deep and dark December I am alone Gazing from my window the streets below on a freshly fallen silent shroud of snow I am a rock I am an island So where do we want to begin with this group? Do we start with the adventures of Tom and Jerry and I'm not talking about the cartoon Mouse and Cat? You guys may I did not go all the way back to hear this Tom and Jerry stuff, but it's interesting. I know because it's where it all started. Well, I mean, the short version is okay. Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel like meet each other in elementary school or something like that in Queens, in New York. Right. They're both Jewish kids growing up in, in, in Queens. And, you know, they, immediately find out the way I did. I remember having a kid I, I knew I met in high school where we could just sing harmonies together and we loved to do it. We got together to do it after school and stuff. They found each other a lot earlier than that. And of course they happened to have voices like Paul Simon's and Art Garfunkel's. <laughs> and so they not only, they probably had some kind of connections too, because they found their way to a recording studio and did this one-off novelty hit single called Hey Schoolgirl. Um, Rory, have you heard this thing? It, it's It's kind of funny to realize that there was an alternate path where in 1957 so they were like literally in high school when this happened i think 1957 uh they were in the charts with this this goofy uh, novelty rockabilly thing You know, it's funny, too, because well, one thing I love about Tom and Jerry era is that it gives aliases for Paul Simon to take digs at art for the rest of his career. <laughs> so he he can actually call him directly by name and not everyone else is picking up on it. Um, but it's also funny in that they have this song. You know, they're both in they're both, you know, arts thinking he's going to be an architect. Paul's thinking he might be a lawyer. They, they, they come from musical families. They might have this this forward dream, but it's all kind of rooted in we might have to just do the right thing and buckle down and have professional careers. Meanwhile, they get this 
song that sells pretty well. I think they end up on bandstand, you know, playing it. There are these young Clark, guys. Wow. They're, yeah, they're, they're in suits and they're playing like this fifties music and they're kind of successful. But meanwhile, for half a decade on after that, Paul Simon's constantly thinking that he's not good enough, even though he gets somewhat of a hit right out of the back. So it's an interesting little time period where him and Art are kind of starting to, you know, bind each other, what they want to do, but also they're unsure if they want to do it. And that hesitancy never really evaporates from the two of them. Yeah, it's the hesitancy, isn't it? And so there's there's always a calculation in whatever Paul Simon does, maybe even throughout his entire career. But I think it, it in an era where like authenticity was really, really like the, the coin of the realm, people noticed the calculation and the things that he did. And of course, the thing that got him in trouble, this brings us to their first album. And I guess the first part of Simon and Garfunkel's career, the way, hey, you know what I had? I had a copy of Wednesday morning, 3 a.m. on vinyl in my household. My dad loved that record, actually. As I said, he was an old folky. A lot of people didn't like it. And as a lot of people didn't like it when Paul Simon noticed this new trend. And you know, it's called the Greenwich Village folk scene. Ooh, this could be hot. I think I'm going to start writing folk tunes so I can fit in there. And they looked at him and Simon and Garfunkel. Basically, as Eravistes, entryists. Like, what are you people doing here? You're Tom and Jerry. I remember you. I remember you on American Bandstand, you little kid. You think you're fooling here? You know, where are your train songs? Where's your authentic Woody Guthrie style? Why are you singing these sweet choir boy harmonies? The choir boy aspect of Simon and Garfunkel, even in this early phase. It's actually something that makes them unique on their records. They're, they're not just singing like folk tunes or, or, you know, pastiches of folk songs. They're singing uh, like Benedictus. They're singing, you know, like actual hymns and things that you would have sung in, in Sunday school. Or And, and also, ironically, because they're both Jewish, so singing like things that are like Benedictus, <laughs> which is just like Latin. You know, I mean, I remember like, you know, my Jewish friends did it when I was growing up, too. It's just like a thing. It was like part of the culture. Right. But it was one of those things where the original, the authentic folk singers, and particularly Dylan, who was the lord of that scene, like looked upon these guys and said, like, who do you think you are? And who do you think you're kidding? not that well accepted, although they, because they were smooth and because their harmonies, I mean, just even at that early date, were peerless, they caught the attention of the record labels because the record labels said, oh, well, these guys are slick and tame and commercial. That also didn't endear them to the folksy, by the way, the fact that they got a record label deal really quickly. Now, Rory, what do you happen to know about this year? I know we were talking about this before the show. Yeah, I mean... Listen, I, I think that the Wednesday morning 3 a.m. specifically, I know Scott was talking about how um, Paul works the studio. This is an album where they didn't have a great producer. 
And frankly, Tom Wilson, yeah, yeah, it, it was, it, 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 and they they didn't have a great arrangement. I thought that they this is a like that first album part of your career is when the record label makes most of the mistakes for you, and I think that that's Paul Simon here, where you know. They want him to do a Dylan cover on his album so they can kind of connect the two and make Dylan fans buy this. But they choose probably the worst one for him where like oh, man. he would have wanted to do like a love song, like Girl from North Country. But they put don't think on- twice. He would have done a good version of Don't Think Twice. It's all right. Finger yeah. picking it like that. That, that Paul Simon specialty, right? Right, but they do times of changing, and it's not good. Mothers and fathers all over the land, and don't criticize what you can't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Your old roads rapidly aging. Please get out of the new one if you can. It's not, and but on the and on the same album they're doing this Robert McNamara like poking fun at Bob Dylan. It's it's just a, a, a random hodgepodge. And to your point, Jeff, like the choir boy aspect. It's like, would you like to find Jesus? Well, I've got two young Jews from Queens that are going to show you the way. <laughs> and it's weird about the whole thing, right? It's weird. It, so he so they're in this era. They're in the they're in the folk music um, scene in the villages. And this album comes out and they immediately have like this big show at Gertie's folk city, which is a big spot. And they're, they're expecting it to be kind of a breakout. And instead what happens is David Geffen is there. He's a young William, William Morris agent. And Geffen comes up to Paul Simon after and says, you know, you should stay in law school. (laughs) And he's like, but then there's another William Morris agent who's also there. Famous Amos, Wally Amos, he was a William Morris agent back then, who says, hey, these guys are actually really good. But Paul's not thinking about any of that because Bob Dylan sat through the entire set laughing and joking with a friend and not paying any attention to him. And so he's got this chip on his shoulder with Bob Dylan that just kind of rests there for the his career until Bob Dylan finally covers one of his songs. And it feels like it comes full circle where there's a mutual respect at the end. But all of these songs have this kind of anti-Bob Dylan chip of, I can do this just as well as you. If ever I return, pretty Peggy, oh. If ever I return, pretty Peggy, oh. If ever I return, all your cities I will burn. Destroying all the ladies in the area. Destroying all the ladies in the area. I read, Scott, what do you think? I read uh, Paul Simon talking about this album uh, later in this particular era of Simon and Garfunkel, and I, I wish I wrote it down. I didn't. It, but he said something along the lines of, that was a time when we were all just writing the same song uh, in, in the folk movement. We were all just doing the same thing. And, you know, to Jeff's point about, you know, sort of latching onto a scene and not writing songs in a manner that befit his talent or 
or or was the best fit for his talent either. This is that era though, right? This is the era that Simon and Garfunkel are 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 folkies. And they, they they always had those beautiful harmonies influenced directly by the Everly Brothers, and that is evident throughout uh, Wednesday morning, 3 a.m. But I mean, you can kind of tell why this is not all that successful because there's nothing there's nothing all that unique about it outside of the harmonies. The, the songs are four original, I believe, and you know some traditional and some some other tunes. Um, you know, there's nothing that that distinguishes Simon and Garfunkel from what almost anyone else on the folk scene is doing in 1964. I uh, I, I wrote a note. You can tell the world is the first song on this album. And I could not... As Rory listen. said, good old Christian rock. Two yes. next well, boys from Queens. It's yeah. hilarious. And I, I cannot <laughs> listen to that song um, without thinking about that uh, great film by uh, Christopher Guest, A Mighty Wind. And the, song, yeah. the the good book song from The Mighty Wind, from A Mighty Wind. Sure. I, it's either influenced or certainly in the same realm, that, that start-stop, quick strum, it sounds so similar and it's and that cheery earnestness yes, too yes, which is yes, yes, that yes. bright fresh faced like big smiles right Absolutely. You know? joy 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 well i don't know but i've been told yes did yes did streets of heaven are paved with gold yes did yes did now the jordan river is chilly and wide yes did yes did i got a home on the other side yes did yes did brought joy 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 into my heart Tell the world about this. You tell the nation about that. Tell them what the master has done. Tell them how the gospel has come. Tell them that the victory's been won. He brought joy, 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 joy into my heart. You know, I I think that the title track, which is the last song on the album, is one of the few where you sort of see what Simon could be capable of he's mm-hmm. a wonderful guitar player and there's some wonderful finger picking moments on wednesday morning 3 a.m it's a it's a simple love song uh, you know in which a, a guy resorts to theft to support his girlfriend 25 dollars in pieces of silver he robbed a liquor store that's a little bit more of what would would come for simon and garfunkel but the rest of it, you know, there's an anti-nuke song the sun is burning which to me just it's just a harmony workout for those two guys it's just you know, what you want to hear, what what you hear is those guys harmonizing like the Everleys on something like The Sun is Burning. That's one of the songs that Simon first heard in England the year before he brought back to uh, to the U.S. He was a brother. He was my brother. Very much. He was a friend of mine from the birds. Um, and so, you know, largely well, the birds version was later, to be fair. Right. I mean, this was this one was 64. Right. But, credit. But again, as he said, everyone's kind of writing the same song. You know, in, in right. He was movement. a friend of mine. Was an old folk standard. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, right. You know, the two the the two things that that stick out to me here are really, I think, uh, Bleecker Street, which is a Simon original, is one of the one of the better songs here. And then, of course, we can't escape without talking about this first version of a song that everybody knows. Sparrow. I really love that song. I think it's I, okay. You know, and, and this is this is the thing I think that, that stands out the most about uh, Paul Simon during this early period is that you mentioned it earlier. His guitar playing, 
I think the closer they stick to these traditional standards, you know, the trad stuff, the more successful it is. Because on a song like Sparrow, which is an old, it's a, it's a, it's a Simon original, but it's obviously written as like traditional folk song, right down to the lyrics, like "Not I," said the tree, you know, the kind of things where the elements are saying, "Well, who will give shelter to the sparrow?" Sparrow, whose travel far and cries for rest. Not I, so the oak tree. I won't share my branches with no sparrow's nest, and my blanket of leaves won't warm a cold breast. Beautiful little lyric that I think shows him at his best. And also then there's Peggy O, which is another classic, you know, traditional song. I think I first heard it done by both Dylan and the Dead. Grateful Dead did another really good version of it as well. They handle it well because it's just close harmony, very beautiful traditional song. Now, um, there wasn't anything else really on this album we needed to discuss, though, right? I mean, it was, you know, otherwise the the record was a failure. I guess there was that, what what was that one, that one song? There was this one other original that there's just a dippy little folk song. Scott, you want to tell me about it? Um, It's something called Sound of Silence. People yeah, I didn't have heard of it up to much. I didn't add up to much, and that's the not funny at the time. Joke. It, yeah, right. Not at the time. In fact, we should forget about it for this moment because that's a song that just went nowhere. I, Plop I, is the end of you were going to say, Rory. Well, I, well, no, I, it, it did, and we can talk about it on the next album. I, I, I will say uh, some things about this album, though. Like yeah. you do have, <laughs> you do have some. The the elements that I see shaping up in like he was my brother and Wednesday morning three a.m. are the storytelling elements where the right. story the story really has to start from the beginning to the end and if you don't listen to the whole story Paul Simon's going to kind of be angsty he wants you to he wants you to get the entire story from him and I you know he was my brother you know this is a freedom writer folk music song and. But it's also this weird premonition because it's about a person that they know mm-hmm. and they write it as if the person's been killed before it happened. And then the person, Andrew Goodman, really was killed. And in the 67 Live version that we're going to talk about later, they actually add in the details of the death. Right. Um, and so it's it it's these remarkable storytelling. You've got some... It, some things that I can't believe the record label did allow, like the Benedictus monk chants. Like I can't believe that that went through. It's very experimental for the time and kind of one of the best moments on the record, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. And then you've got this, um, like last night I had this strangest dream is kind of like an early version of imagine by Lennon where you're dreaming of ending the war and room full of men are never going to fight again. But the difference is there's religion at the end. They're praying as opposed to Lenin where he's like, there's also no religion as well. And when the papers all were signed and a million copies made, they all joined hands and- 
and of course, you know, Jeff knows my my love for the Grateful Dead as well. Like just having Peggy O kind of feels a little bit nostalgic of that early version, kind of like the same way you would listen to like early Not Fade Away by the Stones before the dead picked it up. Um, it's uh I, I think that there's some really good spots in here in between yeah. them being the choir boys and the guitar picking and some of the music. And you see again, like to the point of the producer, the sound of silence, what it takes when the next album and he is able to get Tom Wilson to really help him um, fully materialize. And, and, and by the way, also demonstrating why these guys, why Paul Simon's always been such a good artist to cover. There are a lot of songs on here that he would cover himself in the next album and other people could cover that are good songwriting. They just weren't, uh, they, they just didn't materialize at the moment when he wanted them to. Nope. And this album uh, was greeted with all of the celebratory uh, uh, affect of a lead balloon. <laughs> it went nowhere. It disappeared. Rory already talked about how their big uh, supposed breakout show at Gerd's Folk City went down. Uh, it was so successful that Art Garfunkel went back to college. Mm -hmm. And I think Paul Simon fled to England. Yep. It, it didn't go that well. Um, and this actually represents a really fascinating moment in Simon's career that it, it he put out an album, an entire solo album, which I don't really think that we're going to discuss in any particularity. It was called the Paul Simon Songbook. And he did this in 1965 after the failure of Wednesday morning, 3 a.m. He did it in England. He kind of made a pilgrimage there to sort of, I guess he wanted to, instead of trying to be a folky, he was going to say, well, I'm going to the pop scene here. And so like, what did he do? He spent time, you know, not around but sort of absorbing the music of, of various bands at the beat bands there i'm not just the beatles but i think people don't really realize this enough he spent a lot of time listening to the hollies and the hollies spent a lot of time listening to him as well because they had a harmonic sound uh, their mersey beat style was a little rougher but it was similar in many ways to the blend that simon and garfunkel would end up putting together um so you have this weird interregnal period where he writes all of these songs. Every single one of these songs, I think, uh, would end up either on a Simon and Garfunkel studio album or on a like a, a live performance at some point throughout their career. So I don't really know what we say about the Paul Simon songbook other than just to, to note that this period in England is where he sort of germinates up this next big batch of songs. And I think sort of moves away from being trying to be a folky. And he says, okay, well, I'm going to write, I'm going to write really, you know, cleverly crafted pop tunes that are acoustically based and folk based because that is the instrument that I know. Through the corridors of sleep, past the shadows dark and deep, my mind dances and leaps in confusion. I don't know what is real, I can't touch what I feel, and I hide behind the shield of my illusion. So I'll continue to continue to pretend that my life will never end, and the flowers never bend with the rainfall. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. He, you know, he be, he's not held to the Columbia contract when he's over in England, so he's able to try to record something else. It, he's got some of the songs in there, but it's still, there's just no real production value. And 
there's all these things happening in his life. He's got this love over there, Kathy, that he doesn't, you know, he doesn't know where that's going to land. Is it she, does she come back to America with him? Does he stay there with her? He's busking at some point still, even though he's had some, some success, he feels like he's still just a lonely songwriter. And it's, it's a period where this album is absolutely forgettable. But you can see why it inspired a lot of the songwriting that he the next couple of albums, a lot of the songs come out of things that happened in this really pivotal period for him. I mean, some of the best music he ever wrote is specifically about this. We'll talk about it when we get to Parsley Sage and Rosemary and Time. There's one song in particular that has to be about that feeling of isolation and the lonely songwriter. Just I'm not really sure what the heck it is I'm doing in my life. Um, and he might have done that for a long time. Who knows how long he might have stayed in England and maybe art goes on and becomes an architect or something like that. Uh, but then something really funny happened. Now, now, Scott, do you want to tell us a story about a little song called The Sounds of Silence? I can set this up uh, very well. Yes. Yeah. So as you mentioned, the, the first album, you know, drops like a rock and the guys go their separate ways. And Sound of Silence just exists. And in 65, it started getting some minor airplay in a couple places, a couple of radio stations here, a couple of radio stations there. So it's already a sunk cost. So Tom Wilson, the uh, the song's producer, goes back. And without Let's point out something else that happened, though, in the meantime, in the meantime, Bob Dylan has gone electric. Yes. OK. Yes. And Tom Wilson is also Bob Dylan's producer. Yes. They're both on the Columbia label. And so Tom Wilson, uh, having seen what happened with Subterranean Homesick Blues and Like a Rolling Stone, thought to himself, hmm. In restless dreams, I walked alone. Now the streets of and that's where this did this picks up you know, looked at yeah. that sounds well, silent dylan, song dylan dropped him but dylan mm-hmm. dropped, dylan dropped tom wilson and yep. tom wilson could have been in like the ether of the record label, not with any home. And he looked over at Paul Simon and saw an opportunity to get back up on there with this song in particular. And he, well, you know what? He, he made a, he made a smart and canny calculation, Scott, which in the end worked out for everyone. So Tom Wilson comes yeah. in, in, and yeah. without telling Simon, without consulting Garfunkel takes that original uh, acoustic sound of silence from the original, uh, from the first album and throws uh, a bunch of, electric instruments and drums on top of it uh the version i think is the one that most people know because this is the one that hit number one on the charts simon and garfunkel weren't told until after the song was released and even if they objected it worked out for the best because that song went to number one um beginning of january of 1966 and certainly even before hit number one people knew and everyone could tell there was a momentum behind the song, which led to Simon and Garfunkel reuniting and led to Simon and Garfunkel releasing, recording their second album called Sounds of Silence. It is not 34 
minutes of nothing, you know, as the title. It's not, it's not a John Cage experiment. No, it's it, not. There are actual songs. But this album is also released in January of 1966. Really good timing as the remixed Sound of Silence was hitting number one in the U.S. And this, guys, is a pretty deep departure from the sounds we last remember Simon and Garfunkel hitting on. Now, there are elements of it here and there, but already after spending time apart and in Simon's case, spending time overseas, there's certainly a different approach and a different sound that he brings to the songwriting on this second Simon and Garfunkel album. And a song I was writing is left undone. I don't know why I spend my time Writing songs I can't believe With words that tear and strain to rhyme I mean, it's, it, it is ultimately... When it landed at the time, this thing also went to number one, if I recall. And this is definitely one of those records that was also in my dad's collection. I remember <laughs> it just looking at it and thinking, that's an interesting photo. They're walking through it. I wonder where those woods are located. It was a nice photo. Um, but when you listen to it, it is schizophrenic in the utmost. You can tell there are folk songs. Mm-hmm. There are these weird rocked up experiments. And it was only when I went back and did the research for the show that it all makes sense. Cause this stuff was all recorded at different times in different places. And really with no focus, you know, it, it, it an and in a rush. So you get, uh, uh, basically the weirdest album, frankly, of Simon and Garfunkel's career, the one that makes the least sense, but it still has some bizarrely entertaining moments. And, and oddly enough, the most entertaining moments are the ones that Paul Simon tossed off before he went to England when he didn't care. But I guess I'll get to those later. Rory, what do you think about this one? And, you know, the, the one that really made them household names, I guess. Right. I mean, obviously starting with Sounds of Silence, it's the, the, the song is so big and large and evocative of the era, but also a little bit ahead of its time. I think that part of the reason why it took a while to get some play is because the acoustic version does feels like once you add something to it, it becomes like 1968, not 1963. And it, it, it took a while, I think for people to catch up to it. And that's per, but the lyrics, the, the people bowed and prayed to the neon God they made and the words of the prophet are written on the subway wall, like just amazing songwriting. You've also, to your point, Jeff, have a lot of songs that don't really fit on the same album as that you have blessed that kind of comes from him hiding in a, from a rainstorm in a church and he hears this bland sermon and so he turns it into the Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of a bland song. Blessed are the stained glass window glass. Blessed is the church service makes me nervous. Blessed are the penny rookers, cheap rookers, Oh, Lord. Why 
forsaken me Tended my own garden much too long. But also, like some of them trying to really be like the Beatles, like some the way they mix somewhere they can't find me feels like they're trying to make two voices sound like four and trying to make it sound a little bit more Beatle esque. Um, a most peculiar man, this you know, you can imagine. Paul McCartney picking up a writing a song about a short obituary he read about a lonely person. And that's kind of what that whole song is like the, a person just killing himself in this dark way, but he adds this haunting acoustic to it. And it's um, it. And then you've got, I'm a rock, like another big hit, but kind of these two are just kind of standing by themselves. Maybe if you throw in Kathy's song, those are like the three kind of pillars of the album. And then everything else is kind of just sandwiched in between the, the random Angie uh, instrumental. Um, it's, it, it's good because it's growth and they're finally producing good songs, um, but it's still a little chaotic, a little hectic. I mean, the thing about it is my two favorite songs on this actually are, first of all, Sounds of Silence, just to say my piece about it. I've always found it a bit stodgy. I sang it all the time as like a two-part harmony piece when I was in high school. So I know it very well and it's very pretty. I sang the art part. I had the high voice. Um, yeah. Once you the, upon you had, time, well, you I had could, the hair going for you too. You're very similar to, to art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once upon a time, I could sing kind of, kind of like a choir boy myself. But um uh, I don't know. I find the lyrics to be more than a little bit stiff. And yes, I think a lot of yes. other people did too. That that, that's like, another one. Would... It's not that I hate Sound of Silence, but it's another one like Scarborough Fair that having heard it so many times, I it, it, it didn't sort of throw its arms around me and welcome me into the Simon and Garfunkel universe. And part of that is the stodginess of the lyrics. So you know what I like? I like it when Paul Simon just decides, you know, screw it. I guess I'm going to be the monkeys before the monkeys existed. So right before he oh. went off to Great Britain, he recorded two songs uh, in, in like April of that year. And, and one of them is called We Got a Groovy Thing Going, which is just a really groovy, funky little song. We got a groovy thing going, baby. A little like electric piano playing. Sounds kind of like a zombies track maybe or something like that. And then the other one, which is even better, it's outrageously good. Uh, and of course, maybe for some reason, because he kind of nicked it, uh, is called Somewhere They Can't Find Me. And this was done before he went to England. And it opens with that little guitar riff that sounds really, really, really nagging. Uh, and then you realize, wait a second, right after it, he's really, really at great pains after he comes back from Britain uh, in December when they're doing the uh, Sounds of Silence album. He does Angie, which is the song he stole uh, somewhere they can't find me from and they sequences them back to back just to make sure that nobody thinks that he was trying to get away with a little robbery and they start I they love... start exactly the same way it is the exact same guitar figure exact, that starts both of exact. those songs I can hear the soft breathing of a girl that I love as she lies here beside me asleep with the night and a hell in a fine mist Floats on my pillow, reflecting the glow of the winter moonlight. But I've got to creep down the alleyway 
You know what? It's such a fun, jazzy little thing. That chorus is nowhere in the instrumental, man. When it goes into that weird diminished chord in the chorus, I love it. I think it's actually my first, the first moment in their career, Simon and Garfunkel's entire career, where I'm like, okay, now I'm impressed. And I know it's like in like a sellout pop song that he probably didn't take that seriously. But hey, you know what? I think in a way that's why it works because he's not trying too hard to be make a serious statement. It's just like a fun pop tune, and he was really good at writing those well you know the funny thing too about we've got a groovy thing going is it sounds like the cliche british 60s hipster black turtleneck party someone drives an aston martin in there's been a a heist and and that's why i said zombies exactly that's exactly right and like austin powers is in the corner like it's 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 got that catch and it's perfect for that era but it, it's it's like completely different of what's of, of what he's actually trying to do. There's something you ought to know if you're fixing to go. I can't make it without you. No 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 now, okay, speaking of songs with weird productions, what do you guys think of Richard Corey? First of all, I'll tell you, I always hated that poem as a kid, the Edward Arlington Robinson poem. So I've had a bias against this song for a long time. But listening back to it again, I'll tell you, I've never heard a bass sound quite like the bass sounds on that record. And I give it credit for that. That's a very weird instrumental backing track. They say that Richard Corey owns one half of this whole town with political connections to spread his wealth around born into society a banker's only child he had everything a man could want power grace and style but i work in his factory and i curse the life i'm living and I curse my poverty And I wish that I could be Oh, I wish that I could be Oh, I wish that I could be Richard Corey But otherwise, I don't need to hear about Rich Richard Corey and, and uh, how, how how sad it must be that his, his unknown drama caused him to go shoot himself, <laughs> even though he was the, the king of the town or whatever it was. What do you guys think of those sorts of songs? I think people held those sorts of songs against Simon and Garfunkel for a long time. 
there's a there's an eclecticism here that I think Jeff was talking about because the songs are coming from different places and recorded at different times, and so it's yeah. it's less a piece. You know, each song is less a piece of a whole than sort of some sort of stylistic exercise that sounded good at the time. I have to say, I cannot believe Jeff that you name check the monkeys. I have a note a little bit later on about the monkeys. And I'm like, this is so silly. No one's going to, it's not going to make sense. But now I have to bring it up later because you already right. put the monkeys in our brain. So th that's I later. hear a lot of pop overtones in Simon and Garfunkel. I mean, I yeah. might have thought they were too good for that intellectually. I hear hollies and monkeys all over some of this music. And yeah, that's just a fact because you know what? That stuff did well in the charts. <laughs> so, yeah. and Paul Simon also wanted to do really well yes. in the charts. Yeah. It was very important to him to do well in the charts. So it shouldn't be a surprise that you hear those kind of commonalities. You guys handle I mean, I, a majority of the songs here, but there are just you know little pieces of things. Like there are there are two songs on here that equate the changing of the seasons to the changing of love. You know, leaves that are mm -hmm. green, and then uh, April she will come. April. The you know, the impulsiveness of a girl, and you know, she she loves me, she loves me not. There's um. And leaves that are green. Beautiful you have folk stuff too, by the way. Those are the real throwbacks yes, on yes. this record. Well, the, they sound like Wednesday morning stuff. The harpsichord on leaves that are green. That's just so mm -hmm. of that time. That's something I think they would leave behind very quickly. Somewhere They Can't Find Me is almost certainly the best song on this album. Uh, I think it was Jeff who already told us a, a lot about that. Uh, I'm a rock at the end. You know, this is one of those songs that I think much like the last album right toward the end, you have this Wednesday morning title track that is a little different. I think I am a rock is sort of the, the standalone track here in, in that it, it points to something that Simon wanted to do and was working towards the story of an, you know, this alienated young man who's alone. And, and it almost references, I talked, you know, Brian Wilson earlier, it almost, you know, it's like a folky in my room where he's got his books, he's got his poetry to protect him. He's all alone. He's hiding in his room, but you get that twist at the end, right? The, the very end when he says a, a rock feels no pain an Island never cries uh, in, in which, you know, to my ears, it's all right. I, I, I kind of think I'm okay as a rock in my room with my books, but you know, some friends would be okay. Some, some real emotions that I could feel interacting with other human beings, that would be okay too. That's that twist that just comes at the end. And I, I, I think it's starting to unlock some of the keys to his songwriting here and, and, and still a little bit on the next album, uh, Parsley, Sage, Rosemary. Um, you know, he's still a little literary. He's still a little mm. too cute. He's still trying to, you know, write novels and three minute pop songs. Once that switch is flipped, which I think comes very quickly, it, it, it you know, we enter Mach 2, Mach 3, whatever it is, this, this next era of Simon's songwriting, and that's a really important part of the story. I have my books and my poetry to protect me.
right. think one way I, one way I would qualify it is is by saying I think I am a rock is a very writerly song, but I would I'd say I would praise it by saying it's the first lyric that Paul Simon wrote that is writerly in a good way, mm-hmm. yes, in a way yes. in a way that a pop song should be observed, you know, a, a, as opposed to being overly labored, because that song gently boxes the character all throughout it. I mean, there, there's that line where you just it, it it's funny, uh, whereas you know. Uh, I have my books and my poetry to protect me. I'm shielded in my armor, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one and no one touches me. There's just no way the narrator, the writer of that song isn't, you know, creating a character who you're supposed to say, well, you're silly. You know, like you obviously are deluding yourself. Uh, and that that's what makes him a figure of pathos. Uh, without directly commenting on how ridiculous he is, he just, he says, this is the character and this is what he's saying. And you can get it by, you know, sort of the silliness of the claims that he's making about himself. That's by the way, you know, the way Paul Simon refined himself as a writer. And it's the thing that people didn't appreciate because, you know, it's, it's, it's such a middle brow skill to do the kind of writing that Paul Simon does and that he got better and better at. It's very craftsman-like. It's not, you know, rock poetry or the sort of wild, you know, weird associa- associational imagery that Bob Dylan was pulling out of his hat. It's very studied. Uh, and when it was still like in its sort of journeyman phase early on, it could get real gawky, but it's about to get much, much smoother. Uh, Rory, yeah. did you have anything to say before we moved on? Yeah. Well, well, just on I Am A Rock, I'll say, you know, it's funny that you said that he's kind of mocking the character throughout too, because, you know, I've read some quote from him about how he was just too sincere of a song, of a singer. And compared to Dylan, who could have that mockery and kind of make fun of you at the same time as singing to sincerity. But he does kind of get to it here. But just one funny thing about it. I mean, he's in England trying to get this album out and they're they're marketing it to a mostly religious audience because that's where he got onto the BBC and it's just not doing anything. And then they come back and they add that almost steel drum like sound to it. You start kind of getting a little bit of that future Paul Simon Island vibe into the, the background. And it works really well, but at the same time, it's at the top of the charts at the same time as Red Rubber Ball. <laughs> yeah, I was I was hoping someone would mention Red Rubber Ball. Okay, great. Yeah. So it's just this weird timing where you have like kind of the future of Paul Simon kind of starting to really form on the charts and with his songwriting. And then you've got Red Rubber Ball just randomly in the top 10 as well. Um, at the same time, which is kind of his past, and he doesn't even he doesn't even want to record it. And so uh it's it's also, by the way, to the point I made earlier about Paul loving that complete story of a song. He said that the worst thing that ever happened to him in his time in England was a BBC producer suggesting that he cut the last verse for time. And like that's the worst thing that's ever happened to you in England was somebody said, don't sing the last verse of a song. And he just really protective of it. And obviously the whole song is about being protective of himself. Um, it's 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 I love the song and I love the story behind the song. Yeah, I mean, and again, 
this came out in early 66 and they took the rest of the year off more or less to record, to work at a snail's pace. The, normally you'd strike while the iron was hot. If this was the Beatles, they'd have released three albums in the year 1966 if they just had their first blush of American fame. Instead, Paul Simon with Red Rubber Ball, of course, on top of the charts. This is a song you gave to this one hit wonder band called The Circle, spelled C-Y-I-C-Y-R. K-L-E, Circle. Uh, great psychedelic name. Um, but uh, the song itself is like, you know, cheap, easy pop. But for all of its simple, you know, cheapness, I really do love it. I always remembered hearing it on the radio as like a it's very old It's so. very catchy. It's just very it's, catchy. And I think the worst is over now. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. It's just a really clever little like, you know, pre-chorus into the chorus. So, you know, it, it's hard not to like it. With nothing to recall I've got my life to live And I don't need you at all We're on a coastal line The is nearly at an end I bought my tickets with my tears That's all I'm gonna spend And I think it's gonna be alright Yeah, the worst is over now The morning sun is shining Like a birthmark Whoa, I think but they spend their sweet time making the follow-up uh, an album which i just i can't help but point this out i noticed it just this morning i'm a 42 year old man my dad had Parsley Sage, Rosemary, and Time, which is a mouthful of an album title to say, by the way. Uh, he had that record in his collection, you know, forever. I mean, I remember looking at it, you know, in my earliest days. And only today, as we were preparing for the show, did I notice that Paul Simon is wearing the puffy shirt from Seinfeld. <laughs> I wandered empty streets down past the shop displays. I heard As I walked on And when you ran to me Your cheeks flushed with the night We walked on frosted fields Of juniper and lamplight I held your I have no idea why they got him up. First of all, remember, folks, I, I, it's the first time we've mentioned this, but Paul Simon's like five foot one. He's like a really small guy. Our Garfunkel only looks tall compared to, to Paul Simon because <laughs> right. our, our Garfunkel himself is only like five foot nine. Okay, But he's still a head taller in every picture. <laughs> So imagine a really, really short guy wearing the puffy shirt, and that's the cover of Parsley Sage. I love it. And the, as ridiculous as the cover is, and someone else pointed out that both 
uh, Paul's and Art's names have halos around uh, the first letter in their initials on the cover too, which is a weird uh, little touch. Uh, I think this is a beautiful album. I think it's a real improvement on Sounds of Silence. And I actually think it it's possible that if it was just studio albums we're talking about, this might be one of my top two at the end of the show. Uh, I know Scott will disagree if for no other reason than it opens with yeah. uh, basically, apparently he's already revealed one of his least favorite songs of all time. Scott, before we get into this, can you tell us why you hate Scarborough Fair slash Canticle? It's just so mannered. It's just so... Uh, I, it's, Ghostly. It's supposed to be very uh, haunting. No, yeah. I, 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 I don't like it at all. I don't get it at all. You don't I like know the little chiming, the little the, the no. glockenspiel in the background? None of it. None of it. And it's the song that kept me away for a long time. By the way, this is not the note I had, but you mentioned that the album title was a mouthful. Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Thyme. Hey, the Monkees, Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones Capricorn Limited. And Jones Limited. Um, that's, that's not the comparison I was going to make. And that uh, that one comes later. That's like November 67. So if anything, Monkees were, were, you know, glomming off the side of the if you're, if, if, you're, if your Monkees joke is about Mrs. Robinson, by the way, then we're psychics. We read each other's minds, is uh, it? It is not. It is a... Uh, oh, okay. Um, uh, it's from that well, album. It's from that album, though. So we'll, we'll, we'll get to it we'll, soon. We'll get there because I've got one too. But anyways, you, you, okay. So you don't like the I don't like Sar- big Star hit Fair. single. I don't. Uh, but there are there. Although it wasn't a hit single immediately. This was not the big hit immediately. Right. That that ties into an, something that comes later this year. So, but what do you think much, of the album in general? I would say I would say much like Sounds of Silence, there are still uh, big portions of this album that are. Uh, somewhat grab baggish, but but in a I, I want to say this in a better way. Uh, the way I wrote it is one of the great things about revisiting this is nothing overstays its welcome. It's all two and a half minutes, and, and they're all different feels. I mean, Fifty Ninth Street Bridge song, uh, you know, feeling groovy is very different from for Emily wherever I may find her. Right, so it's like if you don't like it, it's okay. Go to the next song. Wait two and a half minutes. If it, it's it's too much Garfunkel for you, that's okay. Wait for the next one. If it's too twee and light like Scarborough Fair, that's okay. Patterns is next, and that's a cool song. Um, you know, don't worry about it. It's just a couple of minutes, and we're going to give you something else that you might like coming next. That, for me, is one of the real high points or attributes of this album. Okay, so I don't like Scarborough Fair. What I do like is Patterns. Patterns is really neat. I like that rhythmic exercise, and certainly that is something mm-hmm. that Simon would 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 explore far deeper uh, into the future, or even um, the very next album or two albums from now. But patterns, yeah, you start really... you start seeing this obsession grow uh, oh, with, with rhythmic guitar playing in Paul Simon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The night set softly with the hush of falling leaves, casting. Shivering shadows on the houses through the trees And the light from a street lamp Paints a pattern on my wall Like the pieces of a puzzle Or a child's uneven scroll Up a narrow flight of stairs In a narrow little room As I lie upon my bed in the early evening And uh, I, I guess I will, I will mention Homeward Bound. Uh, it's one of the key songs on the album. It's one of the key songs of their career. And I'll start mentioning it here, and it's going to come up time and again. 
So Paul Simon, and this is where it begins. It's not everywhere here, but it begins here. As I mentioned, sort of unlocking this gift. Simon turns what to me was a was a detriment, you know, this very mannered, very uh, English, very proper way of songwriting in which he's, he's always striving for just the, the, the right phrase. And, you know, how could he say it different than someone else? And what, and has has taken that. And because he is so talented, has turned that into a positive here in which he is able to almost more than any other writer of this era craft and create these songs that people have love affairs with people can connect with simon's songwriting in a way that they don't with many many other songwriters and i think it is because of the way that he structures i think part of it is is uh, is is uh, rory's point in which you know there's the, the story it's, there's a beginning a middle and end he wants to tell you a story and part of it is he begins to take this skill he has in in writing and narrative and work it to his advantage in, in crafting songs that deeply, deeply resonate with the audience. So Homeward Bound captures this ache of, of homesickness and, and being away from the ones you love. And he does this both through the lyrics, clearly, but also the, the construction of the melody, you know, in the, in the verses, the first line has, has these descending chords down, down, down. The second line ascends, rising chords up, 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 and it flows right into that sort of bouncy, countryish chorish that really explodes right in the middle. Home, right? Right. The, the rhythm of the song, it gains steam oh, yes. as it goes through the chorus. Yes. It starts like a slow folk tune. And then by the time you're in the chorus, you're rolling along the train on the way home. It's totally right. different. And this is so, it's just so powerful. I, um, I've been watching a lot of, out of uh, SNL recently for <laughs> various reasons, including other podcasts. Ah. Uh, but, you know, early on, Paul Simon and, and Garfunkel, too, are such big parts of, of SNL as hosts, as musical guests. But they're also a huge part of this short film by Gary Cohen, who would do early, uh, early on short films for SNL. And Gary Cohen went to an airport and he captured all these reunions, people coming home, people, you know, hugging their loved ones. You know, it was Christmas time and they played it and it got such a massive reaction on the show that they played it again a couple weeks later. There was an encore performance, an encore presentation of a short film by Gary Cohen. And sure, the visuals were important, but that marriage of visuals to a song that already had meant so much to so many people, Homeward Bound, to me, it's the first great achievement of the Simon and Garfunkel career and arguably could be the greatest achievement of their career. Tonight I'll sing my songs again, I'll play the game and pretend. Mm -hmm. But all my words come back to me in shades of mediocrity, like emptiness and harmony. I need someone to comfort me. And he 
know what the funniest thing about the song is? Is that they recorded it for the Sounds of Silence sessions. It could have gone on that album, but for some reason they held it over for this one. And I'll, I don't know why. There, there's obviously a story behind that. Maybe they just knew they had a banger on their hands and they wanted to uh, keep it there, keep it for the know, next record. I know why. The, the, why? The, the label made them do it so they could have a hook to sell this album. There you go. Okay, so thank you for giving me the history there. I didn't. I didn't know that. Well, that well, they knew what they were doing because I, I think basically I agree with everything you said, Scott. Rory, what what do you want to what do you want to start in with this on on Parsley Sage? Well, I mean, I'll just uh, I could go on for a long time about Homer Bound, so I'll start with Scarborough Fair. My, I I don't hate it, uh, but I'm very biased because much like these songs being a part of your adolescent chorus days. I remember in middle school having to sing this in the round and practice. Yeah, I did too. I did too. I did that totally. Yeah. And I did not like doing that. And I got real (laughs) sick of this song real fast. I think I've tried to give it a fresh, fresh set of ears over the past couple of weeks. And I, I respect it and I appreciate it, but I can't shake that middle school trauma. Is that your buried trauma too? I know you were involved in chorus when you were in in, in school. No, Did you I have was to not do Scarborough Fair? No, I I a uh, was not in chorus. And uh, I thought you were the one who had to assemble the medley uh, back in the day, and you didn't want to have to do Barbara Ann. Uh, yeah, that was it. Was not that was not <laughs> that was a weird thing. It was not a choral activity. We it was just the uh, it was the eighth grade class that got together to sing a bunch of pop songs because uh, my my eighth grade teacher was a huge music fan, and I was too. And between the two of us, we put together this this like com, uh, this performance. But it was not I, I say, choral in nature. I can definitely understand choral trauma from like your middle school or like, you know, elementary school years as being a reason you'd hate that song. That, that, that's very valid, I think. Sorry, Rory. No, it's fair. It, the, it, like some of the other songs in this album, which, you know, they don't require a lot of a lot of background, but they're interesting. Like seven o'clock news, Silent Night is like this really interesting conceptual protest song that, you know, no one's going to like put on repeat ever. But it's it, you know, Lenny Bruce has died and, you know, like it's kind of like the it feels like almost saying goodbye to like that village part of his life. It's you know, he's got the mocking um, of Bob Dylan, where it's like literally like a simple desultory flipic of is like we didn't start the fire for village folk scene, like just naming everybody that's around. 
is in that song. It's, it's an it's, atrocious song. I was going to really lay into it. Yeah. It's terrible. It's an inside joke. It's, it's just terrible. Um, it's like a bunch of folk singers like fighting each other with songs. Like, come on. I'm no man's brains and smile. You come flanking up in a towel. Not the same as you and me. It doesn't take poetry. It's so on hip when you say Dylan. He thinks you're talking about Dylan Thomas, whoever he was. The man ain't got no culture. But it's all right, Ma. Everybody must get stoned. And patterns, which is like literally what anxiety feels like. If you just need a short song to sum up what anxiety is like, like read patterns, being up at night and just thinking, like rethinking everything from the day. And um, with that guitar background is so good. But, um, and then feeling groovy, you know, like, it's like you kind of have to give Paul permission for being happy every once in a while. You know, he's walking across this the 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 bridge and he's it's a nice day and he's feeling good. And so he writes this nice song where he's happy and everyone's kind of surprised by it because he's supposed to be depressed. And it's um it's it's good, but Homer Bound is probably like the first really personal song for me um that we're talking about. It's one of the songs that I sing my kids to sleep at night with it's if I'm on a road trip and I'm driving home, I'll kind of use it as inspiration to point point homeward. The, the story behind it is just so easy to like follow and figure out. You can feel Paul Simon in this train station in England, wanting to get home, wanting to stop playing this game and pretending and, you know, needing that comfort. There's constantly, we'll, we'll talk about it all the way through bridge this desire for comfort that comes through all of his music, like mm-hmm. just please give me some comfort. And he talks about the things that are comforting him and also the things that are giving him anxiety. And it's, it's, it's such a beautiful song. I thought um, now I'm blanking on what the name of the H oh, the leftovers where they use Homer bound at the end of the series on HBO, where it's like the singers, like a way to get out of, essentially purgatory is to like sing homer bound and it it really does like bring that like deep emotion of longing that i think like no other song in that era really does and that's why it still resonates so completely with people who listen to it today i think i'm going to start by talking about the things i dislike about this album I, mean, I guess it's because I'm a negative person. I think I'll point out that the, the anti-war protest attempts on this record are really mattered. I mean, that's actually what Scarborough Fair is really trying to be because they interlace it with that canticle, which is like, you know, about pick up your guns and, you know, weapon, you know, go to battle and all of that. And then, of course, at the end, another choir boy song was Silent Night and then the seven o'clock news, which ends with like, you know, Nixon talking about the war in Vietnam or something like that. Um, a little bit mannered, a little bit cutesy, and I guess still speaks a little bit about Paul Simon not having fully found his voice lyrically. Uh, Patterns, I actually think, is the same way. I think it's it's overwritten as a lyric, or actually underwritten as a lyric. It's just kind of a little, a little too simplistic. And then, yeah, a simple desultory Philippic. I, I said I was going to lay into that one. I, I guess I'll, I'll spare people. I just find it to be like kind of an, an sneering and insultingly mean-spirited song. He's Seems like he's gone after Dylan 
what the heck? Dylan is just at this point, you got to remember Dylan's like, you know, doing the blonde on blonde tour. He's basically off in la la land. Uh, and then he's, he's on the verge of crashing out of the scene entirely. What is Paul Simon doing? Taking shots at Bob Dylan. It just seems like it's cheap and it, and it really hasn't dated well, simply because as, as Rory pointed out, it's like, we didn't start the fire at, at the end of the day. The, the lyrics don't even hang together on a rational sense. Now that I've said all that negative stuff let me actually tell you why i think this might indeed be one of their best albums it's because first of all as everyone's already said homeward bound is one of the finest simon and garfunkel songs ever and i'm not gonna repeat what everybody else said about it uh but there are other ones here that i really love as as well i love cloudy which is a very fascinating pop experiment i think it's really underrated um and the dangling conversation gets me every time i i have a feeling that this is a divisive song sometimes i think sometimes people think again it's paul simon being too mannered but I, I actually love the image where like, you know, these, these two uh, lovers in a relationship that's just slowly turning to ice and it's falling apart day by day and nobody's communicating with each other. And so like, you know, what is it? It says like, you know, you read your Emily Dickinson and I read my Robert Frost, which is such a college bookish, nerdy kind of an analogy to use. But you know what? It's one that I would do myself. You know, it's like one that I could relate to if I was having a fight with someone. So I really love the beauty of that song, aside from the lyric, which I also think is pretty clever as well. And you read your Emily Dickinson And I, my Robert Frost And we note our place with bookmarkers That measure what we've lost Like a poem poorly written we are verses out of rhythm, couplets out of rhyme, in syncopated time, and the dangling conversation, and the superficial signs, are the words of our lives. Yes, we speak of things that matter. I, the lyric I love in Dangling Conversation, and by the way, this is one of those songs where Art really likes it and Paul thinks it's adolescent. Huh. And it, it's uh, I the, my favorite lyric in that song, though, is about the, the bookmarkers measuring what we've lost. Whereas like the bookmark is generally viewed as forward progress, like I'm, I'm getting through the book, but it's about what was lost. And I think it's, it's the time you spent reading the book instead of talking. Right, right, right. 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 I think I think it's a good song. I think it's better live. I don't I, I I don't love it, but I think it's a I think it's uh it's got a really interesting lyrical story behind it. The one that really, really sings to me most of all is uh Feeling Groovy, the 59th Street Bridge song. Now, this is a song actually that has a very funny kind of genesis in my mind. I first truly became aware of it uh through all things the Grateful Dead, who famously <laughs> uh it, it, it I mean, I've even mentioned this on Twitter a couple of times. They, they they famously were playing Dark Star at the Fillmore East in New York City in 1970. And just in the middle of the jam, all of a sudden, Jerry Garcia whips out Feeling Groovy by Simon and Garfunkel. And the audience goes crazy. He just starts playing the lyric. And it's just this beautiful little improvisational moment that's always been a treasure, you know, for dead fans. 
But this song itself, going back to it and hearing it in this album and also in the context of sort of Paul Simon's evolution as a songwriter, to me, it's, it's a turning point for him in a really good way, precisely because it is not a serious song. It's not trying to be self-consciously arty or weighty. It's a snappy little rhythm. I'm sure I could just imagine him writing. He's just sitting on sitting in his bedroom or on the couch or on a doorstep or something, just playing the, playing that snappy rhythm and humming a happy tune and saying, well, I'm in a happy mood, so here's a happy song. Instead of overthinking it, you get the 59th Street Bridge song. It doesn't try to be more than it is, and, and that's what actually I think what makes it great. down, you move too fast, you got to make the morning last, just kicking down the cobblestones, looking for fun and feeling groovy, feeling groovy, hello lamppost, what you knowin', I come to watch your flowers growin', Ain't you got no rhymes for me? Do it and do do, feeling groovy. Except, except for through the title, where yes, oh yeah, yeah, they should have just called it feeling groovy. Right? Couldn't right. <laughs> just do feeling groovy. It's like I. Mm. I have to be pretentious in the title, at least. That's that's hilarious, Rory. You're right. Okay, ding him there. He's just, he just couldn't help himself. He had to give it that pretentious title. But I love that song. It's so effortless. <laughs> it's so casual. And so this was like came out in late 1966. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is before uh, their career explodes. And in 1967 is a very weird year for Simon and Garfunkel. They don't actually formally release anything. And yet they're everywhere and they're all they're participating in all sorts of fascinating things. I I think the first thing we should do is just talk about this, this archival live recording that was recorded in January of 67. So it's right after the release of Parsley Sage, which is, you know, had moderate success. It didn't actually have as big success as um, Sounds of Silence. It didn't have any immediate hit singles that would come later uh, because of a certain movie. But for now, they play this. Just a two-man, a beautiful little quiet acoustic show to an appreciative hometown audience. I think it's at Carnegie Hall or the Lincoln Center, something like that. No, it's um, I got I got it's it's Lincoln Center because it's uh, just before the second song when Artie goes, "Wow, Carnegie Hall," and everyone laughs because it's not. It's it's just it's at the Lincoln Center. Wait. <laughs> oh. Okay, well there you go. Th- thank you for clarifying. Yeah, it. I mean he was joking. Uh, to, he was joking. He knew where he, he was. Just, yeah. He knew where he was, right? Well, the clarity of this performance is stunning. I actually think, and I'm not even kidding, I'm tempted to make this one of my picks at the end of the show, just because I think just them playing this music, some of which wouldn't even be released until bookends, uh, it, it, it's magical to hear them like that for an audience that's very quiet, that waits until it's over, doesn't actually sometimes know what's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, they had another live archival release uh, from 69 that you know came out around the bridge over troubled water era. It's not nearly as interesting as this. This is the one that you should hear people. They actually were quite compelling live. Look around, leaves are brown now, and the sky is a hazy shade of winter. Hang on to your hopes. 
my friend That's an easy thing to say But if your hope should pass away Simply pretend That you can build them again Look around you Grass is high Feels right It's the springtime of my life Change with the scenery, weaving time in a tapestry. Won't you stop and remember me? Quite compelling, quite fun live. I mean, you sort of yeah. pull that thread of 59th Street Bridge and feeling groovy forward. They uh, they do it to work an audience. Um, you know, before Simon introduces, uh, Art was good with his stage pattern. Yes. Who'd have thought, yeah. right? Before he introduces, you don't know where your interest lies, which was, I think, a B side at some point later on. He says, "It's a B side of faking it." I think, yeah, sixty-seven. He, he yeah. says, "Here's a song that I almost finished," and then plays. And I, I mentioned Art's comment before, uh, before the second song on the, on the live set. All right, so everyone who listens to the show knows my where I hold live albums in my, you know, the esteem with which I hold them. This is a pristinely, I, I cannot believe how clean this recording is. And that's one of my mm-hmm. problems with live albums is sometimes they're not the best recording or the audience is, 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 you know, in the way of the music. And I, I want to hear, I want to hear what, what's being played. I want to hear the artists. And in some ways, what you hear live on this live from New York 1967 album, which of course was released much, 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 much later is, is more pure than, than what you hear on the albums themselves, because it is just, uh, it's just them acoustically. It is just Simon and Garfunkel. It is the two of them playing these songs. As Jeff said, some that were known at the time, some that would not be released until bookends. And it is a pristine, pristine recording of, their All harmonies are flawless. Yeah. I mean, the harmonies are flawless and they're never overdubbed. This is just live. I'm just really impressed that people have had that pinpoint. That's Beach Boys level skill, the way they can do that. That's actually the comparison. The Beach Boys were famous for like their sixth sensibility to do impossible things. The blend that Simon and Garfunkel get just live in the air without studio trickery or 17 takes, it's really remarkable. I got no deeds to do, no promises to keep. I'm dappled and drowsy and ready to sleep. Let the morning time drop all its petals on me. Life, I love you, all is groovy. It's, um, you know, it's not a surprise that people still gravitate towards artists stripping down and playing acoustic sets. I, you know, one of my uh, favorite, more uh, modern uh, jam bands, Widespread Panic, they did a whole tour, the Woods tour, where they stripped down all their songs where, you know, like yeah. they're, known, they're known for all of those flourishes and they bring it all down. You're like, oh, this is actually really good songwriting. And that's what you get here. I mean, I couldn't agree more that it's, it feels like it's, it's precise from start to finish. The, the sound is fantastic. It also feels like the last time where they're really on stage together 
and they truly are joined into the experience. They're not, there's mm-hmm. no bitterness towards each other. They're enjoying it. They're singing songs that kind of span the course of the whole front part of their career and with a little hint towards the future. Homer Bound, I think, is so beautiful here. I was uh, arguing with Scott about I wasn't sure whether it's better than the actual famous studio version. It's so it's just glows. It just just leaps out at you. It's so wonderful, right? Tonight I'll sing my songs again. I'll play the game and pretend. Mm-hmm. But all my words come back to me in shades of mediocrity. Like emptiness in harmony, I need someone to comfort me. Homeward bound, I wish I was homeward bound. Home, where my thoughts escaping. Home, where my music's playing. Home, where my love lies waiting silently for me. Silently for me I think you have to accept them both. <laughs> I've thought of yeah. I, I debated it as well too because a lot of these songs you they're special in their own right, but you know, as we'll talk about later when we talk about Hazy Shade of Winter, like I love a much mm-hmm. fuller rocking Hazy Shade of Winter. But this is a beautiful version of the song and you have mm-hmm. it's, that's fine. It is, I think the I think this the reason why it works is because it's the peak of of art and Paul together on stage, harmonizing in a way that does not have any underlying bitterness. They are really performing these songs to the top of their ability. And they're feeling like they're on top of the world, like the things are all working out for them. And somewhat devoid of expectations, too. Right. They had not busted through with the soundtrack and with what was coming next. So not only were they compatible and in a true partnership, but there was also no expectations from the crowd, really, right? They, were, they, they weren't waiting to hear the super hit song. They weren't hooping and uh, hooting and hollering in between songs. It's really a, a capturing the performance of two artists near the peak of their powers. Yeah. I and mean, by the way, speaking of gigs, you know, that had bitterness and disappointed expectations, Rory, this is actually as good a time as any. Maybe you could be the one to help explain to us how the heck did Paul Simon get involved with the Monterey Folk Festival? Oh, um, so... This really starts to show the turning point for in mid 67. So June 67, this would have been right. June, July, something like that. Yeah. I mean, so Monterey is supposed to be Simon and Garfunkel, Mamas and Papas and Beach Boys as kind of the headliners. And Paul looks in and says, you know what? I think we can do more. I think this can be a free flowing demonstration of the art of rock and roll. We can show the span of it. We can invite more edgier acts. And so they get the Grateful Dead and they get Jimi Hendrix and they get Janis Joplin and who the who. And all of a sudden the mamas and the papas and Simon and Garfunkel are kind of like, wait, they were there. I don't even recall them being at that concert because all these other acts give such historic and kind of music changing performances that 
ushers in this brand new era that nobody thinks they belong to. Like nobody thinks that they're hippies. They don't think that Simon and Garfunkel are going to be around for this next era. So it's almost like Paul Simon helped, uh, helped organize his own funeral for his <laughs> that's style. It's a, a wonderful way of putting it. And so there's this, and, and afterwards it's a huge test for him. And what is he going to do in order to either fit in with this group or to keep moving in his artistic direction in a way that remains popular? And a couple of big things come out of it. One is, as we're going to talk about his move towards Mrs. Robinson, but also just him having he the, at the pop festival, the dead sound man gives him some LSD that he took or that he made. And Paul's like very introverted in this respect and thinks, you know, I'm going to try to do this by myself. And he goes home and he takes acid and he loses his mind. Like it's not going well at all. And he's like looking in the mirror and seeing skeletons and it's bad. And then he finally starts to come down and he goes to central park and just starts recording sounds of birds chirping, thinking that it's art. And then like a day later, he sat, he listens to the, the tape again. He's like, this is idiotic. This isn't what I am. This isn't who I am. This is not where I'm going to be. And so it's this, I think, a moment of introspection for him that was really important. And I think it led directly to the song Fake in It. This is my theory. Uh, this and, and I didn't know this. I didn't know this. I just hear that song on Bookends, which is the next album. It, it was released, though, it, right at this time in July of 67. And it was recorded in June of 67. And so you pointed out to me, Rory, hey, the timing actually seems like it might align on this. The anxiety in that single, that song... Uh, which begins with this weird stomping, screaming drums, very strawberry fields forever like. And then it, 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 it you know, slides into this folk tune, uh, kind of a, a snappy little poppy folk song about a relationship where you think you're faking it or you have imposter syndrome. Uh, and it's just nice on that level. But there's something about the arrangement that immediately made me think, though, this is about Paul Simon trying to fit in with psychedelic music and all these new, like, you know, hot rock trends. And he thinks, wait a second, I'm, this is not me. This is not what I'm supposed to be doing. This is all really phony. And that I don't know if it's true. I hope it is. But that's always how I've interpreted that song from the second I heard it. I know I'm faking it, faking it. love that interpretation. I think that I haven't thought about it before we had that discussion. I had always thought of it more of a song about imposter syndrome, 
Like just, and that's something that Paul struggles with for this entire. But, but but this is what he thought he was an imposter in, which is like right. this rock scene. That's the imposter part, not right. the relationship, right? But that's that's it's got to be it, right? For a guy who always thought about his place in like the rock world and in the scene, to just get swamped by Monterey. This story, I learned about this from you. I learned about the, I learned it from you, Rory. <laughs> I learned it. I, I I learned it during the prep for this show, and I didn't know it. So it's so fast and see all of these threads come together. This is what I meant earlier when I said that it seems like he's writing his anxieties into these songs at this point. Yeah. I mean, I, okay, so like, so that would take us like through July of 67. And, and you know, again, maybe Simon and Garfunkel are about to get swamped by, by current psychedelic rock trends. As it turned out, the Summer of Love stuff burnt itself out real quickly. You know, by 1968, everybody was ready for a return back to like, you know, more traditional musical verities and, 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 and not as much, you know, mushrooms and acid anyway. Um, so they would have been fine regardless, but it didn't matter because what happened also in the meantime is a little film by Mike Nichols called The Graduate. Uh, does anybody know the story of how Simon and Garfunkel got involved in this film? I actually don't. It just seems yeah. like a natural pairing, you know? Well, I mean, it seems like obviously, you know, Mike Nichols and Elaine May are going to turn to Simon and Garfunkel for something like this. Dylan wasn't available, so they're going to turn to Simon and Garfunkel. It, it actually was somewhat not natural, at least as far huh. as Simon was concerned. And maybe Roy can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure what happened is this is a mounting frustration on behalf of the record label about not having new product because Simon was oh. again laboring over another batch of songs, which would become bookends. And so they had this opportunity to place some uh, some songs on the uh, on the soundtrack for The Graduate and Mike Nichols, who was the director really liked Simon and Garfunkel and really thought that they would fit well on the soundtrack. And Simon was uh, pretty much against it. Didn't want, didn't think it would be good for the career. Didn't think it would be a great move. And Seriously. Oh, this is so funny. I had no idea. Yeah. And, and eventually, um, I think he met with Nichols and agreed and said, okay, I'll, I'll, um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some songs. You can figure out what you want to do with them. And he gave them two songs. He gave them overs and he gave him Monkey's oh, dilemma. Yes, yes. And Nichols is like, no, I no, this that's not 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 for me. And in his back pocket, Simon had this song, Mrs. Robinson, which he actually didn't like at all, and he couldn't finish it. It's just an old instrumental piece that Simon didn't think was going to be anything. But he said, "All right, well, I got this thing." And Garfunkel says, "You know." If you're going to write it for the movie, why don't you try writing in the characters? You know, why don't you try writing in this, you know, this is Mrs. Robinson. And so then Simon began playing with the song and putting a few things together, adding Mrs. Robinson into the lyrics and it fit together. Handed that off to Nichols, who loved it. And that's how that became part of the soundtrack. Now, also interesting is... That song was not a song until after the movie was released. The, the, the soundtrack only uses these little, I think, three separate uh, 
little fragments. Yeah, little bits and bops. And, and it, of the it, song. It's not, right. it's not, I always remember when I watched the film, like waiting to hear the whole song. I'm like, where's the song? And Simon, the film. well, it wasn't in the film. It wasn't done. He literally didn't complete the song until it appeared, you know, until it was ready to appear on bookend. So there, there was no Mrs. Robinson song when uh, the movie was released. But there were these enough these, of these fragments and lyrical thoughts and lyrical fragments that Nichols was able to use them in the film and also use them on the soundtrack. And the big hit from the soundtrack was Scarborough Fair. That yes. was when that yeah. became a hit single. That was Parsley Sage's big hit single. And it was only at the end of 67 that it became big because it was featured famously in the film. And this is a big deal. And again, I think it's one of the reasons it's a contributing reason as to why Simon and Garfunkel is so beloved. And this is so well remembered. The work on The Graduate is Prior to this and prior to Mike Nichols sort of devising this, you didn't have movies in which current pop music by current artists was used in a way to further the narrative to give you insight as to what the characters were thinking feeling now in a musical absolutely but not in a film like the graduate and so nichols yeah, and the, pa- the pattern for pop very specifically had always been that they play the theme song that plays during the opening credits mm-hmm. or something like that but they they're not like Either like you know, as you say, elemental to right. the drama of the film inside the film, and, right? And this was the change. I mean, that was the the breakthrough of, of how Nichols used the music and how Simon and Garfunkel became intertwined uh, intimately with the graduate film and the soundtrack. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's it's you know, one one of the things about all that was that you're right, Scott. Like the studio wanted something else out there. But Paul didn't want it to be this. He didn't want this to be considered his album. And so they promised that they would make it look like a soundtrack. They put Dustin Hoffman on the cover instead of them. And he relented. And he also didn't really love the book that it was based on. And so he relented. He did have the, he did have the do, 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 do. Jesus loves you more than you will know. He kind of had that. And that's what Mike Nichols grasped onto but it was mrs roosevelt it was not mrs robinson and like i don't think mrs roosevelt would have ever made it this <laughs> is mrs robinson you do kind of connect it to this character of somebody who's loose lost their faith who is struggling as a married woman and she and and here she can find redemption in jesus again and she can and and then it's it's kind of tied to america and where you know where have you gone joe dimaggio and joe dimaggio is like the story is that he asked Paul, why did you put me in there? I'm in commercials all the time. People know where I am. And it's just because Mickey Mantle didn't have enough syllables. And that's who he would have preferred. He liked Mickey Mantle, but he went with Joe DiMaggio because it, it, it was more lyrical. And it's 
it's this ability for Mike Nichols for the first of two times to have this really big uh, part in their lives where he kind of gives them this opportunity to say after Monterey, oh, there actually is a really um, popular place. Not everybody is a hippie. A lot of people really want this music and there's a demand for it that allows bookends to kind of come bursting back out. I will say this. Uh, Paul Simon had written a lot of really great songs up until this point in Simon and Garfunkel's career. But Mrs. Robinson as a lyric is is by far the best thing he had written up until that point. And I think it's probably one of the smartest things that he ever did with that, you know, while they were together. Uh, and, and the reason it works is because it is his earlier attempts at political commentaries felt like they were either too insufferably vague or like, you know, cutesily, you know, cutely poetic or, or you know, writerly. Uh, but this one just hits all of the right sort of elemental beats, too. Because remember, it isn't just about Mrs. Robinson. It's about America. It's about America in general. I and mean, it has that. My favorite verse is, you know, sitting on the sofa on a Sunday afternoon, going to the candidates debate, laugh about it, shout about it. When you've got to choose every way you look at this, you lose, which is, uh, <laughs> boy, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of 2023, doesn't it? And that's when it rolls into where have you gone? Joe DiMaggio, our lonely nation turns its eyes to you. Um, and, uh, that is such a great, you know, even if, if he would have preferred Mickey Mantle to like, you know, refer to a baseball hero, some sort of symbol of like, you know, your, your pure childhood, listening to the radio when everything was good. It, 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 it's it, there's no labor in it, although it's so labored. I mean, obviously, Paul Simon works. He works so hard on the song. It took like seven years to finally write. So obviously it took him a lot of time and effort to get that lyric right. But at the end of it, it doesn't feel forced. And that is going to be what the best Simon and Garfunkel music and also Paul Simon's music throughout his solo career is going to have going for it from here on. He's finally getting comfortable in his own skin. Which I guess brings us to Bookends, which is the album that that finally comes out. Was it April uh, 1968? Uh, so I guess a year and a half after Parsley Sage. Um, this album is well loved by everyone. I know Scott has a lot of good things he wants to say about it. But as I already said, like, you know, do I need two minutes of old people talking? <laughs> no. And I guess the biggest dig I'll make against this, and this is the one that might scandalize people. I've never loved like the whole old friends bookends theme. It's very touching. I understand the principle of it. It's a very amount of, you know, it's, it's a worthy theme but it has just never moved me. Now, maybe when I'm 75, I will suddenly start shedding tears <laughs> and realizing what it means to be an old man with my old friend from back in the day. But right now, it feels a bit too mattered in the way that his older stuff does. I think I like almost everything else on this record quite a lot, though. Let us be lovers, we'll marry our fortunes together. 
some real estate here in my bag. So we bought a pack of cigarettes, and this is Wagner Pies, and walked off to look for America. As we boarded a greyhound in Pittsburgh This shipping seems like a dream to me now It took me four days to hitchhike from Saginaw I've come to look for America I like it I like to think of Scott and Jeff when they're both 70. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Although we've friends. never met. It would be, it would be, you never. know, uh, a bench in different cities, I guess. If two, two, two different cities. We'd have like <laughs> headphones or AirPods on or something like that. Just <laughs> chatting while we're feeding the pigeons. Right. Exactly. I really love bookends. And this is, is the one that I, I return to most often in prepping for the show. Uh, look, it, it's not perfect because yes, Jeff, I, yeah, voices of old people works in the, in the conceit of that first side, uh, of growing and aging and all of that. But yeah, I probably don't need to hear that every time I listen to the album, but right. I think this is a really monumental achievement in terms of, of Simon's songwriting and in on side one, which is sort of this, this song cycle, right. Of, 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 um, of loneliness and exploration and trying to find who you are and, and, and then being comfortable with it and growing old in it. Right. That's how, sort of how I see this first side. Hmm. One of the big points I want to make about bookends is this is another another of the most powerful things of Simon's songwriting. And it gets to it in in old friends. I think it definitely gets to it in in America and elsewhere. Paul Simon demands that you get personal with him when he writes his songs. He 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 puts it on you, the listener, to invest part of yourself in his songs. It's a true, it's a gift. It's a real gift. And again, that, that sort of bookishness, bookishness that he had early in his career, that literary quirkiness to the songwriting, I think manifests itself now in a way that he is relating to the audience and relating to the listeners of his music in a way that hits them on an intimate level that is not being struck in many other ways. So Old Friends, the song that, that comes after Voices of Old People, where can you imagine us years from today sharing a park bench quietly? How terribly strange to be 70. He's, he's talking to an audience around his age, right? And at this point, he's mid-20s, I think. And imagining 45 years into the future, and you start thinking about all the things in your life that will happen between this point and 70. What will I have accomplished? Who will I meet? Who will I love? Who will still be there when you're 70? He insists upon the audience that you get personal with him. Can you imagine? 
Imagine us as fun today Sharing a park bench quietly How terribly strange to be seventeen Old friends Memory brushes the same years Silently sharing the same America, which is a song that I only became real familiar with when it was on the almost famous soundtrack, uh, a movie that Jeff still has not seen. But it captures so much of what that film was Never about. Does. And you have young William Miller growing up, finding out what it is he wants in life, how to get it, hitting the road. You know, in America, you have this young person leaving home, if my geography is correct, going from starting in Saginaw, Michigan, which uh, is such an interesting place to pick. I was in Saginaw not that long ago, and it's 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 nothing, right? Back then, I think it was, pro- <laughs> it was probably a little more, it was, it was a bigger town back then, I'm sure. But like to pick this random point in the middle of Michigan, down to Pittsburgh, heading east to find America, this, and it captures, America captures this restlessness that people are feeling around this time in 1968, the physical restlessness to, to go find themselves, but also this spiritual questioning. And I, I don't know why I was thinking about this. Oh, it's just sort of, you know, America's this young person leaving home, right? To go find something better to go be, is this, I need your help. Is this the first generation? Is Simon capturing something here? that this is the first generation that doesn't really want to be their parents, right? I'm just thinking back, you know, if your dad did X for a job previously, you do X for a job. Like you were following your, in your dad's footsteps. You take over the company, you you work on the family farm, you, you do what your family did. And I think clearly I'm not of this generation, but I wonder if Simon is really tapping into something here, that this is a first generation that doesn't necessarily want to walk in those footsteps, that feels this longingness, this restlessness to get away, to go find themselves, to go find something that is more important. And then, of course, what does Simon tell us at the end of America? He's on the New Jersey Turnpike and he sees all the others on the New Jersey Turnpike and figures they're all looking for the same thing. Everyone's out there. Nobody's finding answers. No matter how far away you go from Saginaw to Pittsburgh or further out east, Everyone else is trying to do the same thing. Kathy, I'm lost, I said, though I knew she was sleeping. I'm empty and aching, and I don't know why. Counting the cars on the New Jersey Turnpike, they've all come to look for a man. It's, wait, wait, Scott, are you, are you trying to tell me that the highway's jammed with broken heroes on a last chance power drive? It's, it's something along those lines, isn't it? Is, 
everybody's out on the road, but there's tonight. And it just seems like there's no place left to hide. Yes. I don't know. I'm just funny how these images keep getting picked up. Like, you know, throughout various, you know, rock songs, mythical rock songs. I really love the way that you view that. And I think it certainly is correct for that generation of Americans. Like, you know, whatever. We don't like these hippie kids. We don't like these, these spoiled sixties boomers, but mm-hmm. this is a boomer anthem for a reason. And it certainly embodied the way a lot of them felt back in 1967 and 68. Now, it's funny for me, America has been a song. I think it is, by the way, you know, right, one of the signature achievements of this album. It's probably, yeah, is it the best song? Probably. Um, but of course, for me, I've always been a sucker for the Yes version, which I think we may have covered <laughs> uh, on our yes. greatest cover episode. Yes, yes. Uh, 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 if, you, if you thought America was good as this very quiet, wispy Paul Simon, Art Garfunkel folk rock tune, boy, you'll love it when you hear the 11 and a half minute frog rock version with screaming Steve Howe guitar solos and a a three minute long Rick Wakeman piano interlude. Oh, it's great. It's just wonderful with John Anderson amping it up and singing at the top of his lungs in the highest range possible. Uh, It took me four days to hitchhike from Saginaw all gone to look for America. The majesty of that chorus is is what makes the song so memorable. And the sadness with which it resolves. That song is very metrically irregular. You can count it maybe as a waltz if you just do one, two, three, one, two, three. But in the way it's structured, I have a lot of difficulty figuring out where its verses and its choruses begin because it seems to change from verse to verse. Maybe that is part of Paul Simon's sort of writerly affect Mm -hmm. signifying the uncertainty of of the, the people who he's writing about. It's a fantastic so, I mean, by the way, I have to point out Saginaw is one of those the small towns in Michigan that keeps cropping up in rock songs. So there, there, it's here in America. There's also the Monkees. If I ever get to Saginaw again, uh, by Mike Nesmith, he seems to want to go back for some reason. I don't know why. Um, and and then there's Pavements Saginaw, which was a, an EP track from the uh, Wowie Zowie era. So yeah, mm-hmm. Saginaw. I think it just sounds like it's a really fun well, town to say in a song. And I, I also just point out very quickly, I, I'm not demeaning Saginaw. I've been there. It's very nice. But this is one of the those population. <laughs> rains that was happening at that time. I, I looked it up. Yeah. The, the, you know, the population of Saginaw in 1960 was something like 100,000 in the city proper. And by 1980, it's 77,000. Today, it's like 44,000. So it was beginning yeah. back then, you know, that, that, that move away, that drain from some of the previously, you know, industrially important cities in the U.S. And that's probably one of the reasons Simon picked it. So Rory, tell us, are we appreciating bookends enough or are we just faking it? No, you are. The, you know, the funny thing on the Saginaw, like I grew up outside Detroit. And I think that even for people from Southeast Michigan, Saginaw is kind of a mystery. <laughs> like it's, it's just a part of the state that you have to deliver go to. Is it in Western Michigan? Where is it even located? Oh, I have no idea. In the thumb. Oh, oh, it is. Oh, okay. And so it, it, it requires some deliberate thought to want to be there and what, what you're heading there for. 
I I think the I think America is a gorgeous song. I've always loved it. I think that it's a song about the country that will far outlast the 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 interpretations of the song in the 60s or today that you can constantly reinterpret the song based off of what's going on in the country at the time. I, it obviously has some Kerouacian vibe of that getting on the road that you you both articulated. I think one of the things that from a political beats perspective that drives me nuts about this song is I'm so jealous of the ability of like Bernie Sanders to use it politically <laughs> as somebody who grew up in Republican politics, who would never have gotten away with using a Paul Simon song where, you know, we have to use Brooks and Dunn or Glee Greenwood or Kid Rock. And he gets to make this beautiful 30 second spot with this, um, with this soundtrack and just from a political perspective, I was like, man, I was jealous of that. But well, Rory, the- I can top you. Sometimes it ends in disaster because Michael Dukakis in 1988 tried to use America, Paul Simon's America, for his introduction speech, his big like, you know, I'm going to run for president yeah. speech. Yeah. Um, and his advisors didn't know the song. And so they, they didn't realize you have to cue it up, like at around two <laughs> minutes into it to get that big <laughs> So they started from zero, zero. So, so Dukakis had to stand out there on stage for two minutes waiting for to get to the moment and only then begin his speech. And it was an inauspicious beginning to a losing campaign. So yeah. there you go. But, but how is it? I know that factoid. It's amazing. I remember that from my childhood. But again, that's Mike Dukakis. <laughs> that's true. Very true. A, a different sort of New England politician. It's I, a great song. Though. I, I think you, I think I also, because you talked about the yes cover, I have to acknowledge my unpopular confession here as well, that my favorite version of a hazy shade of winter is actually by the Bengals. It's, it's, the, okay. it's weird that that seems to be almost a consensus view. I like that version better. I think Jeff likes that version better, but I've read that elsewhere no, too. I don't. Oh, you don't? I, okay. I, I, I am now, I like I am now, I am now a convinced believer in the live acoustic oh, version right, from yeah, that okay. 67 concert. Yeah. That is by far the best version of it. Um, and I guess actually I take the studio version, which is it, it's rocked up. This is a full band performance, and the the general the quality of the song just shines through. It's a great song. It just loses some of the delicacy. And the Bangles version isn't bad at all, but it's like an '80s rocked up cover to me. I, I know Rory, you said that you like that takes it at the clip that you want to hear that song. It, it rushes it rushes through it. It's it's great in that respect, but I don't know. It lacks some of the subtlety. Look around. I feel like the drum beat that they're using it that is against her and it gets that tribal drum beat yeah. is just begging to get faster. It just <laughs> it just begs to, it's like a rock song that's just waiting to like break out. And if it weren't the Bengals, somebody else maybe would have done it. Right. Um you're right. Like if as a Gen X listener, like it brings me back to less than zero and that time period. And so there's some of some some uh 
nostalgia over there as well. But And if there's one thing that Simon and Garfunkel just really weren't great at doing, it's rocking out. I mean, if, right. you're, if, you're, if you're really looking to headbang, you know, I guess Cecilia is the best closest you're at because this, these guys weren't known for their big guitar riffs. Right. But uh, yeah, I just want to say, by the way, I want to say a, a word of praise uh, for one other song on this, which is the one that ends it called At the Zoo. Jeff. I love this. And I, lo- I love this for the same reason I loved uh, feeling groovy because Paul Simon, when he's just being playful and silly and having fun, really, he, he just lets himself run free. This actually reminds me of a lot of the stuff you'd see on stuff like There Goes Ryman Simon uh, or, uh, you know, his, his, his debut album. This is uh, my this is my monkey song, Jeff. This is the song oh. that I I said. Look, this is if the, if the monkeys did this, it would be kind of slight and weird. And oh, it's just the wacky monkeys doing a song. Paul Simon does this, and it's sort of highbrow. Yeah. Yes, and it's art, but it's the same song. And so Simon's tapping into that sort of, as you said, poppy pop country pop folk that the monkeys had mastered. And brings it here to a song like At the Zoo, and it means so much more because it's coming from Simon and Garfunkel. But it's the same, it's the same kind of thing. The monkeys stand for honesty, giraffes are insincere, and the elephants are kindly, but they're dumb. Orangutans are skeptical of changes in their cages, and the zookeeper is very fond of rum. Secrets are reactionaries and elopes are missionaries. Pigeons locked in secrecy and hamsters turn on frequently. What a gas you got to come and see at the zoo. At the zoo. At the zoo. Thank you for reminding me of my monkey's note, by the way, Scott, which is that I realized that, you know what, if you think about it, Mrs. Robinson really sounds like Paul Simon just listened to Pleasant Valley Sunday and said, I can do better. And it's the same basic theme if you think about it. Whereas that's very milk toast, the Goffin and King, Pleasant Valley Sunday from Pisces Aquarius. We love that song, right? It's a classic from the 60s. But same basic themes. Mm -hmm. And so here you go. And Paul Simon's like, I'm going to give that the erudite New York. York gloss. <laughs> and then he does Mrs. Robinson. But to go back to In oh. the Zoo, you were saying Rory? Yeah. No, I was I was gonna go back to at the zoo as well. Yeah. I, I, I was gonna say the the uh the the ironic part about this is we just talked about America where he's trying to get on the road and find something different, yet every other song is about him getting around New York City and not going out and finding something different. He just wants to be in New York and 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 take this yeah. bus over to the zoo and and he gets right back home at the end of the album and has this kind of very day, day in the life Sergeant Pepper's kind of song at the end where it's just kind of him living in the city. I just, but also, I give him credit for writing very witty couplets. I just love zebras are reactionaries, antelopes are missionaries, pigeons plot in secrecy, and hamsters turn on frequently, uh, which is to say that they, they drop acid, is what they're saying, that the hamsters are all tripping. Um, it's just like goofy fun, and you're right, Scott, maybe if it were the monkeys, they'd, they'd think of it the way we think of gonna buy me a dog. Right. Uh, but in, in, instead, <laughs> it's also, by the way, give it credit for being incredibly well 
calibrated arrangement. This is the point where Simon has found a different gear in his guitar playing style. It's worth pointing out. You you start seeing it showing up. Uh, the rhythmic obsession is something that 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 really shows up here. Stuff on faking it, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but also his his guitar style is becoming. I guess I don't know how to describe the way Paul Simon plays acoustic guitar. He says is like I don't play fast. I can't play fast, so I just play carefully. Everything is not quite finger picked. It's a combination of chords and it's both finger picking and flat picking simultaneously but what it is is incredibly precise uh the precision i guess perhaps is one of those reasons why other people think like well simon and garfunkel don't rock or you know they're not really people think that they're too twee but i think it's just a hallmark of simon's style and i really do like the way he plays his guitar we might as well be apart Hardly matters, we sleep separately And drop a smile, passing in the hall But there's no laughs left, cause we laughed them all And we laughed them all, in a very short time Just a habit like saccharin. Well, and and this is the first album where they bring a synthesizer into the studio. Um, yeah. Save the life of my child. And mm-hmm. going back to him really using the studio and like being like he sees at Mon- it goes back to Monterey where he sees this guy who invented the synthesizer. They invite him to the studio. He's fascinated by it and he puts it into the song. And it's um, it's just that different sound that he thinks belongs in the studio that he wants to play with. So I, I why to, did it? I was just going to say, very, say the life of, the, of my child. I was listening to it while mowing the lawn when all good listening happens. I literally had to stop and pull out my phone and make sure that there was some not, that's not, not some sort of weird skip to a different artist, to a different album because of the dissonance between that beautiful, simple, quiet bookends thing theme that guitar picking into that that dissonance Flair, of that right. synth on the on the front of say the life of my child a song i really really like but it comes totally out of left field because as, as roy mentioned it's the first time they've used something like this on an album
I mean, it, it, the faking, it has the same effect where it, it comes in with the strings and drums that actually end the track. If you real, I actually listened carefully to faking it and I realized that that thing that opens it is really just the ending uh, overdub tacked onto the front and then it goes into the body of the song. Fascinating little trick that Simon did. But again, it opens side two with like a big honking horn. Like what? Like this is this is not this is not the band that we thought we knew. Which I guess does anybody want to explain why this band that seemed to be this band, this duo that seemed to be evolving, took another what year and a half to release their next album and then simply broke up? What do we do about the year and a half between was it April '68 and January or February of 1970? I believe uh, that filled up the time between bookends and bridge over troubled water. Well, this is the second time Mike Nichols enters the picture and (laughs) changes the trajectory of this group by offering acting role to art, actually originally offering acting roles to both art and Paul for catch 22 being filmed down in Mexico. Uh, But the part that he was going to give Paul gets cut from the script. Art wants to do it anyways. He's already been missing concerts. He's been late to concerts. He actually at one point missed his plane for a concert in in London. And so they, the management had him check himself into the hospital so he could fake being sick and actually injured himself in the hospital. So it it just, Art's kind of this chaos over there. He's pulling away from Paul. He's there for months instead of weeks. And you start hearing in all the songs that Paul starts writing for Bridge Over Troubled Water. And we'll, and, and we talked about it in some of the email exchanges that all these songs just start, just start uh, telling the story of that pulling apart where art is basically pulling himself away. Paul is starting to realize, Hey, I'm writing all these beautiful songs, but I have to be chained to this um, duo and it's not it's 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 taking my freedom away. And and they're also, by the way, fully recognized within the music world at this point They, you know, uh, uh, they beat Hey Jude at the Grammys. They're about to beat Let It Be at the Grammys. They're like everybody has fully accepted them. And Paul's like, you know, I feel like I could do this by myself and I feel like I already am. Scott, what do you want to say about. The final album of Simon and Garfunkel's career, Bridge Over Troubled Water. It finally came out in, I actually have to go look this up. What is it? What was the final? It's It's January 26th. Yeah, 19 January 26, 1970. They started recording it. They didn't even get around to recording it. The first sessions were in November of 68. I think in early 69, throughout that whole period, that's when Garfunkel's out in Mexico and shooting the film. So they only get back to it midway through the year. Um, And, uh, it seems like it would be an inauspicious way to record a record. Uh, but of course, Paul Simon being Paul Simon, he probably relished having all that time to stew on his loneliness because what he ended up crafting <laughs> is just amazing. I have to say this is the one Simon and Garfunkel album that can be unreservedly, unreservedly recommended from start to finish. I don't think there's a weak second on it. It's almost miraculous because there's none of the mannered nature of anything uh, you know, that you would have seen it prior in their career. And I guess maybe it was that personal drama that mm-hmm. sort of got Simon out of his shell. 
None of these songs really, there's nothing here like Punky's Dilemma, which was an interesting piece on bookends, but it's just about a guy like saying, well, you know, do I dodge the draft or not? What am I going to do with my life? It's a writer's art piece. Everything on Bridge Over Troubled Water feels like it's either kind of rollicking and fun. There are great pop songs and love songs, but the very thoughtful and ruminative ones don't feel stayed or stolid at all they feel really alive and the reason they do is because they're very personal because they really they're all about the dissolution of that partnership why don't you write me a letter what bright in my loneliest evening maybe today if it's only to say that you're leaving me I know Scott will disagree with this. I think it is a perfect album. I love it. The only thing that I think takes away from the perfection a little bit is I, I don't like the inclusion of the live bye-bye love. <laughs> I think that it just breaks up the album at the end where all of a sudden you hear a crowd cheering and you're like, wait, wait, it pulls you out of the song that you're listening to. I, it's I, I'm fine with Bye Bye Love. I'm fine with the version. I just didn't think it belonged on this album. I think that they should have ended it um, with Song for the Ask. Why don't you write me into Song for the Asking and just called it a day? But it is such a gorgeous album. And, I, and we can talk about Bridge Over Trouble Water, the song itself. But I think it's one of the top 10 songs of the 20th century. I think it's uh, a gospel that talks about pain and comfort in these deep and easy relate to ways. It's almost, it almost feels like operatic. It's um, it, it's even the last verse, which Paul wrote in the studio in a matter of minutes, because the producer wanted an additional verse sail on silver girl. Mm-hmm. That was his relationship that morning is I, I forget who he's with at that time. I think Peggy or his, his, his current wife, she's lamenting gray hairs and he's talking about sail on silver girl. Your you, all your dreams are on their way. See how they shine. I'll be right behind you. It's such such an amazing song, and the way it kicks off this album, it just pulls you in and then glues you to the rest of every song after it. Sail on silver girl. Oh, if you need a friend, I 
Uh, let me respond to a couple of things that Rory said. Uh, mo- most specifically, uh, first on the bridge over troubled water. One of my main takeaways is it's really, for lack of a better word, ballsy to start a, 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 an album with that song. That's a song. Mm-hmm. I mean, brilliant. We should end brilliant. the album, right? right. You think that would be you, the last song? You on the end record. the album or end the right. first side with it. That's not a song that ever starts an album. But they had to have understood exactly what they had. It was a completely um, uh, transcendent song that they had crafted, and the way that Garfunkel, they just had to have known the importance and the outsized impact it was going to have. So stick that first. I've got to talk about the end of the album because Rory says doesn't like Bye Bye Love. And it, you know, on the surface, it is a little incongruous with, 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 with what's around it. But I think it's very clear. You know, Jeff, Jeff talked about this is, this is a breakup album, but, but not with a, a lover, but with a, with a partner, with a creative partner. This is Paul and his best and, friend, basically. And, right. His I mean, best friend and his, and his creative partner breaking up and knowing going into it that this was going to be the end and this the second half of bridge plays to me like the second half of abbey road in which you know mccartney creates this huge brilliant unbelievably good song suite in the second half of, of abbey road that, that takes you through the end of the band essentially and here on the second half of bridge over troubled water what do you hear? I'm going to walk through this step by step. I want to come back to to one of these songs very quickly. So at the back half of of uh, of Bridge, you, you maybe start this with the only living boy in New York, which is my this this this. I almost like this better than the title track. This is such an amazing track. But what is it? It is it is Simon pissed at Garfunkel for going to make a movie in Mexico, leave him leaving him alone, and he's hinting that this break is coming. I know you've been eager to fly now. Let your honesty shine. It's an amazing song. I'm gonna come back to that. In um, get your plane, get your plane right on time. Right. <laughs> and it, and then that segues into why don't you write me, which is another song about this breakup with art. And he's Simon's upset that even though he's away, he's also not communicating with him at all. He's just sitting around waiting for Artie to return from Mexico for making this movie. And he said, why don't you write me? Why don't you tell me? And he said, mail the letter today, even if it's only to say that you're leaving me, right? Give me some closure. Let's get this thing over with. So you run through it. And then what do you get next is bye-bye love. To me, this is Simon completely throwing it back to the beginning of the partnership and saying, look how great we were. Look, look at this. We were inspired by these guys, the Everly brothers, the music we have created stands on its own. This is who we are. This is what we have done. And so you have this live. By the way, of, do you know who the, you know who the MVP of Bye Bye Love is? It's the audience. Yeah, it's the audience which is clapping along perfectly on the beat. And I, th- I have a feeling that must be like when it happened. Simon said, "Like uh, we can we're use keeping this. that." Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, so, it's, it's like that was amazing because <laughs> they are so locked in on that song, and that's why it's such a wonderful version.
episode throws back to the beginning of their career, the beginning of their work, tips yeah. a cap to their major influence, and the two of them together on stage saying goodbye, giving this massive round of applause at the end. And if you look at the sequencing, that applause drags onto into song for the asking. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a total segue into this final song, which is what Paul Simon all alone without arts vocals. And you get this line that says, I've been waiting all my life. He, I, I can't help but think that that sequencing is completely intentional and, 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 and goes toward making the point that Simon wanted to make as he was putting this album together. I, th I think it's totally intentional. Let me go back very quickly. And I'll, I'll hand it off. So only living boy in New York, I think is just a, it's, it's an incredible achievement. I talked earlier, I, I don't think of Paul Simon as being like a studio innovator or a guy who lived in the studio turning knobs and figuring out ways to, but there are points in his career where you say, well, yeah, exactly. Only Living Boy in New York, those backing vocals, those distant the choral, Those chorale harmonies at the end, oh it's just goodness. like you're being like, there's like, like ghosts just floating yes. in and around you. He's yes. like, he's alone in New York and he's just abandoned and all he sees is like empty houses. It's wonderful. It's just a brilliant song. And again, going back to how, how, how Beatles influenced, there are so many Ringo drum fills all over this song. And if you listen to The Only Living Boy in New York, there's a lot of 70s pop that takes cues directly from here. Like a lot. A lot of early Elton John, even some of the more successful stuff. This is the template. This song is the template for a lot of that stuff. It's my fit. It is. I like it better than Bridge. And I love Bridge. This is my favorite song on this album. I mean, by the way, you talk about the songs that Simon was writing about, you know, his relationship with Garfunkel. It's so long Frank Lloyd Wright. It's yeah. obvious. It's, I mean, like literally Frank Lloyd Wright could just be like Arthur, you know, Artie Garfunkel. I don't know. You had to get the scansion to fit. It's just like he, he didn't want to use Mickey Mantle because Joe DiMaggio fits better. Um, so, but like literally so long Frank Lloyd Wright, who is an architect, I might point out. All the nights we'd harmonize till dawn. I never laughed so long. So long, so long. And he's also saying good farewell, farewell. He he's not talking about Frank Lloyd right there. He's talking about art. And that's why it's so it's so that's on the first side of the album. And it's so wonderful. I think there there's so many things I want to say about this record. I think the first thing I'll I'll point out is that it's the one where his obsession with rhythm really becomes, you know, obvious and it comes to the fore and it sets a template that's gonna you know show where he goes, especially, you know, from his first few albums 
and Silker onwards. I think in particularly of stuff like Baby Driver, which I love and I never heard until I got and I did this episode. In fact, I even saw, I saw a film called Baby Driver in the theaters with my wife several years ago. I had no idea it was named after a Simon and Garfunkel song. Now I know. And guess what? The song is better than the film. Okay. That's a great, it's a great little hot percussion number. So is Cecilia, which again, it almost like you could segue directly from the stomping drums at the end of faking it into the boom, chicka boom, chicka boom, chicka boom, chicka boom. It doesn't sound like any natural rhythm you'd hear. It's a very studio created sort of like, you know, bizarre, like, you know, rhythmic attack. But then in comes this, this beautiful little, like, you know, tight harmony song, tight, tight harmony song that sounds like a bit Everly Brothers, but you know what it really reminds me of, Cecilia? It reminds me of the song Carrie Ann by the Hollies. Oh. And it's definite it owes a lot to the same kind of percussive start stop acoustic tight harmony attack that that song had. But Cecilia is the better tune. I love it so much. Um I guess I have to be the guy to mention The Boxer. And The Boxer is a fascinating song for me precisely because this is in many ways a road that Paul Simon did not take in his solo career. I think it's one of the best achievements of, you know, Simon and Garfunkel's career. Everyone does. Uh, and it's a fascinating uh, uh, tune for so many reasons. Um, but it begins with like what's begun, going to become his great classic, like close finger picked style. And then it sort of slowly unfolds over this lyric into a quasi orchestral thing. During the choruses, he sings, it's just lie, lie, lie. And then somebody just hits this giant, what, timpani in the background. Bong! And it's like, where does that come from, right? It's like an orchestral touch. And then it suddenly makes sense at the end when strings start to join it. And then it feels like it's a fully orchestral piece. But the boxer's tale itself is just one that always haunts people. Asking only workman's wages, I come looking for a job, but I get no offers. Just to come on from the wars on 7th Avenue I do declare there were times when I was so lonesome I took some comfort there la, 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 la. Um, I think, you know, 
there are there are choruses that seem self-pitying. You know, when he says, like, you know, asking only workman's wages, I come looking for a job, but I get no offers just to come on from the horizon 7th Avenue. And, oh, I do declare there were some times when I was so lonesome, I took some comfort there. Uh, but that final verse is the one that everyone remembers. In the clearing stands the boxer, and he's a fighter by his trade, and he carries the reminders of every glove that ever laid him down or cut him till he cried out. And his anger and his shame, I am leaving, I am leaving. But that fighter still remains. And who is Paul Simon talking about in that song? Is he talking about himself? Is he just talking about a character? Is he writing for the everyman or is he writing out of his own mind? It doesn't matter. That is a singular achievement of pop music. I think it came out in early 69 before the album itself, actually. In the clearing stands a boxer and a fighter by his trade and he carries the reminders of every glove that laid him down or cut him till he cried out in his anger and his shame. I am leaving, I am leaving, but the fighter still remains. is a song so good that even Bob Dylan had to finally tip his cap and say, I'm going to cover a Paul Simon song. And so he covered the boxer and he did it even funnier. He duetted with himself, his old voice and his <laughs> new country voice. And then he horrified both Paul Simon and the rest of the world by featuring it on self-portrait. When I left my home and family, I was no more than a boy in the company of strangers in the quiet of the railroad station running scared Laying low, seeking out the poor quarters where the ragged people go, looking for the places only they would know Lila Lai Lila Lai I, I, um, I think one of the funny parts about that, the Dylan cover in itself is that Dylan not only covers it, but I think borrows a lot from it when he records a hurricane a few years later. Yeah. About another fighter. And there, there's, there's a little bit of unboxer underlying hurricane. I think this album I could tell you almost every song on it has some level of perfection. And by the way, Scott, I think you make a very convincing argument for Bye Bye Love. I still am probably not <laughs> going to be excited when it comes up. I get what he was trying to do, but every song on this album has some goodbye art uh, part of it. So I, I, I'll take your argument, though. I think like so, so long Frank Lloyd Wright Weird song, obviously he's saying so long to Art, but Art had asked him to write a song about Frank Lloyd Wright. Yes, yeah. I didn't know that. But that's yes. wonderful. I had, <laughs> and so he instead wrote a song about Art about Frank. I just wanted that. That's a yeah, Paul Simon. Like it. 
and Art didn't like it. But then Only Living Boy in New York, which is also a, you know, fly down to Mexico uh, song about Art, Art loved, even though it's about him abandoning his friend. And so you've got it. The, the the orchestral parts of like even in the boxer where you've got that big horn solo which is like it's almost like in a cathedral with the echo um they're using all of it but i i have to come back to um personally i got to come back to cecilia because i named my daughter after the song um, we oh, how, well, wonderful yeah good and, choice yeah i mean it's a gorgeous fun good beat song it's got that St. Cecilia writer's block element to it, which is back to pure Paul Simon struggling with his own craft and creativity. But it's also got this intense relationship, come up to my room. And it all comes out of um, a, a night in Laurel Canyon where they're just bouncing around the piano, Art and Paul and some friends. And they just find this beat and, and, and Paul turns it into this. And, it's it's a song that if you know it, hear it the first time, you're going to be tapping your foot, tapping your hand. After a few times, you're going to be singing it. And then it just sticks with you forever. And I'm obviously biased in it, but it is a song that our whole family knows. And we we all sing it. And it is, um, I, I think this album has so many parts of it that are perfect. But Bridge and Cecilia and The Boxer and Only Living Boy in New York, if it were, if this album were just those four songs, it still probably would have sold that as many albums. Scratch my monologue on how awful Cecilia is now. All things considered, <laughs> no, I'm wait, just, wait, wait, wait. I'm no, just wait, wait, wait. Seriously, what? Just oh, because you, you did mention there were other no, but songs that you were triggered by. But I not, what it's they not were. Cecilia, uh, which is a great song. <laughs> the, my my point on Cecilia, or my thought as I'm sitting, is it's uh, I, Jeff mentioned Carrie Ann, which is true. But I had another Ann song in mind, which is Barbara oh. Ann from the Beach Boys. It's sort of loose. You hate Barbara Ann. That's I do hate Barbara Ann, but in terms of how it, it's constructed. Um, you know, sort of that loose ramshackle. We're just singing in the in the in the studio or singing, you know, in the backyard. The any vibe, right? Yeah, yeah it feels and very it, casual. And it also probably helps to preview a song as weird as it sounds, like "We Will Rock You" by Queen, in which the audience, you know, becomes a part of the song. Right? There's that thumping beat and very easy to remember and sing along to. So you see, I, I kind of see things going both ways. 
you guys have talked about, I'm just going through my notes. I think just about everything that I had uh, written down here. The only thing I'll mention is on the boxer, um, always like the song hard for me to ever hear it again without thinking of the very first Saturday night live after nine 11 in which you uh, have the firefighters and the New York police department members, uh, standing at attention as Paul Simon yeah. solo performs that song. It is one of the, Oh, I'm getting chills. It, it is one of the more most moving live performances of any song. Um, you know, you throw that in with U2's performance at the Super Bowl that year. Very different. You know, that was much more uh, up tempo and, and and sort of get up and fight. And this was very much a reflection of the city of New York, the people who work so hard to, to try to save lives and to dig out and what they went through in that. I guess it was probably 10 days, 14 days between the event and, and at first SNL. And Simon being up there all alone on one side of the stage and these firefighters and emergency personnel on the other side of the stage. It's one of the most moving performances, especially because so many of those lyrics, you know, the, 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 the ties that Simon has to New York, the ties that he had to that show and the Lorne Michaels, the producer, and and tying it all together uh, with the fight, you know, the fighters still remains. And it's one of the most moving performances that I know of. Um, it's really, really emotional. That's I will always think of the boxer in that context from from that point forward. In the clearing stands a boxer and a fighter by his trade, and he carries the reminders of every glove that laid him down or cut down till he cried out in his anger and his shame. Well, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, but the fighter still remains. it is it's also worth pointing out that like you know it's should really be emphasized how there are certain artists that mean something to new york city and then sometimes these artists don't have a lot of like overall big critical credibility you know another guy i think of is billy joel how quintessentially yeah. new york is billy joel right uh springsteen i guess is probably more jersey than he is quite new york he's a little bit of both but uh, Simon and Garfunkel, from the moment they started, always were such a product of the city. Such New York-centric people. We just joked about, you know, on uh, bookends, you know, where yeah, everyone else is going out to look for America and Paul Simon just wants to go to the zoo. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> like, he really, really loves this town. And in fact, ironically enough, that's going to be the name of their reunion single uh, because this is the end of the road for Simon and Garfunkel. There's 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 uh, there's a, a fascinating moment. They they put out another one of these live archival releases uh, in like the 90s or the 2000s. I don't remember. 
And it was the Bridge Over Troubled Water era tour. And so at this point, they were no longer just doing a, you know, an acoustic duo thing. They realized, well, we have all these songs that in, involve a full band. So they got like the Wrecking Crew guys, like Hal Blaine and all those dudes to accompany them on tour. When you have that many chart hits, you can get those guys. You have the money to hire them and take them out of the studio. Um, and so the actual album itself, though, feels very sedate. And I'm actually... Fair- pretty disappointed with it it really shows the difference between like you know he shows how their partnership was fragmenting but there's one moment on it that's really really memorable and it's uh, a cut that's taken from actually this time i believe really carnegie hall in new york city in october of 1969 and i'm pretty sure it's the first time that anybody in that city on the planet is hearing bridge over troubled water for the first time so it's just Art Garfunkel standing there alone. Paul Simon is even on the stage. Remember, he has no role in this song instrumentally. They have a, you know some guy professionally who's playing the piano. And all I can tell you is that Garfunkel's performance is just perfect. And at the end of it, this audience, which has never heard the song before, erupts. Just absolutely stormy applause. They realized, just as we talked about, that they heard something truly special and that no one had heard before and that the house is brought down. And, you know, I, I think I remember Paul Simon, someone saying this about him. And he always, he sort of always like, you know, felt really awful about that. Like, I'm the man who wrote that song. And like, I, I'm the guy who wrote that. And, and, and I don't even have a role here to play on stage. And everyone's cheering. And Art didn't even like it when I presented to him for the first time. He said he didn't like this song. And now he's getting all the plaudits. And here I am standing in the shadows. Um, that- he, introduced, he introduced the piano player. And not Paul. He's after he took the applause, he introduces the piano player and he gets the pianist gets applause. And then Paul expects to be next. And then nothing. nothing. And that was it. That was it. Oh, if you need a friend, I'm sailing right And so, and that, and they actually, they played out the string. They, they did a couple shows in Europe. I've actually heard the soundboards. They, they, they know they're still passable, but the, the joy really seems to have gone out of it. And so at that point, it was inevitable that they were going to break up. I don't even know the formal circumstances of their breakup. Maybe you do, Rory. Did they issue a press release? Was it like the Beatles where, you know, like, you know, uh, we only found out when Paul Simon put out his debut album <laughs> and there was a little interview in the middle of it. I don't know how they formally broke up but even if you didn't know you'd have guessed 
because you'd have guessed by that final album, which is this terminal statement in any kind of musical relationship, uh, as you could ever imagine. I mean, it, 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 it really is a capstone. That's the thing. Like you, you, Right at the beginning of the show, Rory, you mentioned that one of the great things about uh, Simon and Garfunkel is that they ended at the absolute peak of their powers. There's no like, you know, what, well, we know what the what if. The what if is Paul Simon's solo career, which is great. But we're never going to have like, a, like a, a disappointing Simon and Garfunkel record to think about uh, because they never really did anything again except for one random single. Do we want to talk about the 1975 reunion single? Well, I, I'll just say the, the way that they broke up, by the way. Is, oh yeah, you do know. Thank you. Inform me. It's, it's, well, it, was, know. it was as quiet as it possibly could have been. Paul didn't want to make a big deal out of it. Clive Davis was begging them to stay together for commercial reasons, um, which Paul was insulted by. He wanted to just immediately isolate himself and start thinking about the next stage of his career, start writing new songs. And it did kind of just trickle out that it was over. And there was never any big like. And they had the excuse because they always took so long between records anyway. So yeah. like if they were silent for a year, people were like, well, that's just Paul Simon anyway. Right. <laughs> that's why. Yeah. But it is it is startling. I don't know if we're going to go all the way to Central Park, but. We should. We should mention it. Yeah. I, I would just say that kind of the resolution of all of it when they get to that Central Park concert show is that. Paul once again leaves art out there to perform bridge by himself and does it in a much more magnanimous way because now most of the concert is actually centered on his solo career. And he, I think the insecurities of that relationship are somewhat behind him, but not, but not necessarily the bitterness, but also he's now fully like, there's a point in that central park concert where uh, Art gets the timing wrong on a song and Paul just kind of looks at him out of the corner of his eye, like art. And it's like, Paul's finally dominant on the stage as opposed to feeling like I'm dragging this guy along. And it is interesting how the, this live performance of bridge is a, the final nail in the coffin. And then the live performance of bridge at central park is kind of a resolution to it all. Yeah, it does. And it's a beautiful that that Central Park show in 1982, the short version is like the park was falling apart. And, and you know, and of course, Simon had had his career, which we've covered at great length in another show. And uh, they they asked, hey, could you guys reunite? It'll be a big fundraiser. And I think both of them weren't doing too much at the time. Isn't that around the time that Simon's latest album had kind of failed? I can't remember which one it was, Hearts and Bones or something like that. Um, but um, the. Uh, Reunion really went off beautifully, except for one stage invader during uh, late great Johnny Ace. And there's that one moment I can't remember which song it is. Whether I think it it might have been Old Friends or something like that, where they realize they're singing the song and it's basically about themselves uh, after all of these years. And they actually just look at each other and and they they keep their tone. You can watch the video, but they just start laughing about it. And it's actually a really nice moment. Um, there's never they they did a tour afterwards you know live in europe or something like that but there's never been a studio reunion they've both gone their separate ways and i think that's for the best i actually really respect the fact that unlike you know the endless csny's you know which will not happen now at this point um like 
there was never an attempt to do another Simon and Garfunkel album. They let it end where it ended. And, you know, they put a proper cap on their career and that's the way it should go. I mean, you know, you know, my little town is a fine little reunion single, but it, it, it's not bridge over troubled water. That's the ending of the Simon and Garfunkel story. Nothing but the time I saw Paul Simon live, but one of the second to last, I think. And I saw him, uh, he was headlining with Sting and Sting kind of did his songs and Paul Simon kind of did his songs, but then Sting kind of sat in a little bit on the Garfunkel side of some of, some of the songs. And it was like, Paul kind of wanted a little bit of harmony, a little bit of duet, but he didn't want He wanted to do it with somebody he felt was more, of the songwriting equal. And I, I, I always felt it was kind of a, an interesting pairing to kind of capture a little bit of that later in his career without fully recommitting to it. Scott. I will think about somebody Garfunkel in terms of, they really had an, I don't know if outsized is the right word, but when you look at their contemporaries of this time, there are many other acts with many more albums and probably many more charting singles. But I don't think, and it's possibly because of the way that Jeff described the way their career ended, right? There was no decline. There was no hanging on. There was a pretty, there was a clean break. I don't know that any artist, I mean, Beatles, okay. Uh, any other artist really of that time enjoys the relationship even to this day with the audience that Simon and Garfunkel had and, and have something about those songs, something about the way that Simon wrote something about the way those voices harmonized so perfectly struck in the hearts of so many music fans and so many Americans. And just hearing the opening clomp of Cecilia might prompt someone to name their daughter after the song. Uh, just hearing the beginning of Bridge Over Troubled Water take someone away into this gospel setting. Just hearing the, you know, the light of eyes from the boxer will put someone in a completely different state of mind. And again, uh, the second ever episode of SNL was just a Simon and Garfunkel reunion. There was like a sketch and a half or something, but essentially it was turned over to Simon and Garfunkel uh, to reunite and play. And the reaction that they got in 1970, uh, 1975, uh, when, when they came out and did it was, was truly incredible. People still embrace them and embrace their music. And I think I, I sort of consider them as having this outsized 
role when you compare it to the volume of music others might have created, the quality and the residence of the, of the material that Simon and Garfunkel produced is really quite astonishing. Yeah, I don't think I could put it any better. I think that's ex that's exactly right. The, um, the what they did in a short period of time, and a lot of artists, by the way, in the '60s were in that boat where they just got squeezed a lot of lemons lemonade out of the lemons in a short period of time. Um, you just ended up with this group of songs that is so timeless. And will be a part of just this Americana and this New York soundtrack for so long. And we'll be able to be covered over and over again. Like even if it's the Lemonheads with Mrs. Robinson or anybody pulling a song out today, uh, there was even a good, uh, one of my favorite covers too is Richie Havens did an only living boy in New York. That was, uh, that, that was fantastic. You will constantly be able to remake these songs rearrange them and bring them to new audiences. And that's the songwriting underlying them. Art's voice, art's accompaniment was beautiful, but this was always about Paul Simon's arc as a songwriter. And that's the arc that you see with the, with the rise and then the separation of these two. All right, there All we right. are. The Political Beats look at the music and career of Simon and Garfunkel, the companion piece to the Paul Simon episode released previously. We uh, are, are, are joined by Rory Cooper. Find him on Twitter, at Rory Cooper. And he's also a partner at Purple Strategies. And right now, he has the floor as we give you the two albums you must own and the five songs you should hear from Simon and Garfunkel. Rory. Uh, I won't uh, bridge over troubled waters. Clearly, number one. Um, I'm not a vinyl guy, but this album, after listening to it heavily on rotation for the last couple of weeks, makes me want to go buy a record player and start being a vinyl guy. Um, and then the second album is probably a political beat sin, and we didn't even talk about it. But the 1972 greatest hits album. It's the album. Oh, yeah. That was one that my dad had as well, of course. Famous. It's the album that brought me into the group. It came out right when Paul Simon's crushing it with me and Julio and Mother and Child Reunion. They put it out and the label puts it out and it stays on the chart for two years. And, you know, greatest hits albums get a knock. But if you want to enter into this discography, it's a great way to do it. And your song, sir. Oh, yeah. My songs are Bridge, Homeward Bound, America, The Boxer, and Only Living Boy in New York. And frankly, they're, they're some of the most popular songs, but they're just the songs that I love the most. Note, I didn't put Cecilia in, in there. I wanted to be unbiased. Um, but clearly, Cecilia and, and uh, Mrs. Robinson are up there for me. But if you listen to Bridge over Trouble Water, Homeward Bound, America, The Boxer, and Only Living Boy in New York, you are going to get the best of this duo. All right, my two albums are the final two albums. I think there's just a, a leap forward in bookends, which actually is my favorite, and then Bridge Over Troubled Water. But those are the two Simon and Garfunkel albums you should have. In terms of songs, much like Rory, I, I gravitated toward the ones that are recognized as being great. Maybe you need to hear him again for the first time. Maybe you haven't heard him before. Maybe like me, you didn't like Scarborough Fair and need to... Get into Simon and Garfunkel. Okay. Homeward Bound, America, and The Only Living Boy in New York. 
those are the three core songs I would have on my list. And so I, I picked two more. If you want something from early in the career, I think Somewhere They Can't Find Me is an excellent song from the early part of the career. And then I've got one slot left and uh, I went a little, uh, I went a little goofy. Uh, At the Zoo is a wonderful track and uh, it gives you a little insight into the more lightheartedness of Simon's writing. So that's my fifth song. Jeff? All right. Well, um, it's funny. Uh, we've all kind of come up with different answers, which surprises me. I'm going to go with Live 67 for my first album. Yeah, it, it, I don't consider it a cheat, even if it's an arc. Hey, if Rory can pick that greatest hits record, I can certainly do this. Let's put it that way. All right. And, and, and again, because those are just such pristine versions of those songs, and it comes at such a perfect time in their career. The other one is obviously Bridge Over Troubled Water for reasons that don't need to be explained. My five songs... Scott, uh, everyone's right. Homeward Bound is just a just a beautiful, magnificent little stolen, captured gem. It's just like almost like you know, encased in amber. I love that song. Feeling groovy from also from Parsley Sage. Again, when Paul Simon just gets breezy, this is you know, if Scott likes At the Zoo, this is my version of that. It's just like a a really happy, zippy, fun song. You don't have to be all ponderous and sincere. Mrs. Robinson, yeah, maybe it's obvious. It doesn't matter. It's this is Robinson is a great song. That thing drives that riff. There's a reason Paul Simon hung on to it for however many years that he had it bouncing around in his back pocket because that thing drives. And the lyric he came up with it really actually was worthy of it. The boxer from Bridge Over Troubled Water for the reasons we already discussed. And I guess I'm going to have to end with the title track. I, I just, uh, I am, I'm so stunned. Scott really put it well when he said like, you began the album with this song instead of ending the album with the song. It really was the end of their career. It is the capstone of their career. It is one of the most beautiful ballads ever written. And boy, give Art Garfunkel credit. No one, I've heard a hundred covers of Bridge Over Troubled Water. Uh, I have never heard one that's as good as his. Uh, That voice was singular, and nobody ever sang that song, which was a truly perfect song, the way that he did. And it's one of their greatest moments. When you're down and out When you're on the street When evening falls Garfunkel on Political Beats. Thanks to our guest on today's show, Rory Cooper, two decades as a Republican strategist and now corporate reputation and advocacy as a partner at Purple Strategies. Find him at Rory Cooper. Rory, thanks so much. If we ever do a uh, an Art Garfunkel solo episode, I guarantee you'll be invited back. 
He had yeah. some hits. <laughs> it, it'll it'll definitely be a shorter episode. <laughs> well, will we do an art? Will we do an art Garfunkel filmography? So we, we you know we do like you know Catch Twenty Two, Carnal Knowledge, and yeah. whatnot. Right. Thanks, Rory. Uh, Thanks Jeff, for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Jeff, find him on Twitter at Esoteric CD. Uh, we have uh, knocked this up. I, I don't think we know exactly what's next, but I was talking yesterday with some people. There are a few ways we can go. Uh, there'll be another fine show in September. Jeff's on Twitter at Esoteric CD. You can find me there at Scott Bertram. Remember, patreon.com slash political beat. Support us. Help the show stay ad free. Entry level, mid level and our upper level best friends all over at patreon.com slash political beats. Also subscribe for those shows. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, or write at nationalreview.com. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter or X at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.